ever wondered what number is a bigger number than the biggest number you ever dreamed? One million. Come with me. You finally made it. Yeah, those seven, seven digits. digits we've been craving. Count them. That's the world's population. Put your hands up. It's a celebration. So we finally made it. Hit one million checkpoints. Save it. From a raw young YouTube crew And now with the whole world's favorite Wanna know the secret? I'll educate you son Making vids on my motherfucking PlayStation Thanks mom Cause look at me now I got plus on lock and an avatar crown Well let me spell it out Am I double L-L-I-O-N? Means when you're talking smack about my lack of plats Triple nine and a nine friends got my back I don't wanna overstate it but This is probably the greatest moment in history And if we don't win the prize for Nobel Peace It's a mystery Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, the banisher himself, Liam Edwards, and I welcome you to the 17th episode of the show. Now, if I was really to banish my guest today to a virtual deserted place forever, I would make over 1 million recent YouTube subscribers very unhappy. My guest today has been working in games media in various capacities since 2004, both writing and producing video content for a multitude of publications. From 2007 to 2010, he was the reviews editor for official PlayStation magazine. From there, he moved on to become the associate editor for one of Future Publishing's first forays into the digital space, First Play. During all this, he's been contributing to publications such as Edge Magazine and Total Film as well. But for anyone listening today, you probably know him as the editor and Brian Cox impersonator for PlayStation Access TV, a weekly YouTube show dedicated to all things PlayStation. Alongside the excellent team of Rob, Dave and Holly, my guest has created funny and informative shows three times a week. Recently, the PlayStation Access team celebrated hitting over 1 million subscribers and did so in the most gangster way possible. My guest today is the excellent Nathan Ditton. Hello, Nathan. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you doing? I'm all right, man. Yeah, I'm not so bad at all. Um, I'm fresh from Uncharted 4. I'm feeling good about life. That's awesome. Is it? How's the weather in the UK today? I'm always, <laughs> always very interested in how the weather is back home because I'm absolutely sweating to hell in the Japanese heat today. It's doing that kind of thing that it does in April and May where uh, we've had some strange weather fronts. So we had... Um, uh, well, we, you and I were just talking about football. I drove yeah. up to Man- Manchester recently to watch the Champions League, and I went through. Um, it was, you know, it was like different video game levels. I went through hail, um, where <laughs> I nearly had to stop my car, in like beautiful uh, sunshine in the Midlands, and then just well, then Birmingham looked like the apocalypse. It looked like the end of Beyond Two Souls or something. It was crazy. <laughs> so the weather is all over the place. Excellent. Oh god, it's it's so warm today. I, and because because of the way I, ha- I have my room set up, I have to close all the windows in case th- there's a train, there's a high speed train that goes past. So I have to close all the windows and close all the doors. So I can't get any ventilation in. So it's just this stuffy hot box that I'm sat in right now. See, one of the few. So I've been to Japan a couple of times, but with yeah. the, I've never in the summer. And okay, um, but I did read uh, David Peace. I read um, some of his kind of Tokyo Police stories, yeah. and I don't know if you've ever 
never read them, but no. they're just they're just about the the heat. He's got this kind of style, which is uh, just it's like this repetitive kind of mantra. He kind of um, is very kind of they're very first person subjective novels and they okay. kind of the the idea is that the language replicates uh the, you know processes of thinking but he, he basically all that these japanese policemen think is how goddamn hot they are and it's all just about flies and sweating it's, I, when i because i arrived in japan last august and divulging from video games for a second <laughs> i arrived in japan last august and i'd never I'd been to America, I'd been to hot countries in Europe and that kind of thing, but nothing had prepared me for the humidity of a Japanese summer. And this was towards the end of the Japanese summer, so it wasn't even like peak heat. It was like maybe 28, 29 every day. But it's the humidity that gets you. It's almost like someone's put like cling film on your face. (laughs) <laughs> it's so hard to breathe I, at some times. I hate it when that happens. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> I do not advise anyone coming to Japan in the summer um, because it's just sometimes unbearable. And I remember having to train in a in a suit <laughs> during the the heat, and I never felt anything like it. It was horrible. But yeah, at the same time, you get all these flies and you get all the mosquitoes at night. Uh, it's not great. <laughs> it's, it's starting. It's starting yeah. again. I've carefully constructed my life so that I don't have to wear suits ever. Your humidity is just, uh, it's just the worst. I've spent my whole life not wearing suits until I came to Japan and now it's a quite a regular occurrence and I'm, I'm getting used to it. It'll be amazing because when uh, the Japanese winter was quite cold as well and um, and because I declimatized that the heat, the cold really affected me. So I'm really scared about coming back to England next year and how I'm going to just die in the freezing cold. <laughs> All, all it is with England, it's always fine. It's just the the misery of the rain, isn't it? That's that's what you have to. It's uh, true. Yeah. It's, it's really. It's just. It's just, we're so we barely move our weather. You know, it goes from slightly hot to a bit cold, and but the really, it's just the wet that's the the challenging thing. It's funny because I never truly got on board with the whole seasonal affective disorder that people talk about. But since I've yeah. been in Japan and I'm used to sunny days all the time, when it is a grey and wet day. It really does change your mood. It, and I can see where people are coming from now. They come to England. They're like, "How do you deal? How do you deal with such miserable weather?" I don't know. I think I think it's it. an age thing, man. My, my dad, like, he's moved to Spain now. Uh, he's okay. kind of retired and he's and he's moved out there. But he, you know, we used to. He's like just chasing the sun every summer. And I, so I grew up. You know, I'm not a big fan of the heat. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather just stay indoors and, and play video games or you know, like <laughs> we go, go on like a city break somewhere nice yeah. or like kind of yeah. cool places. Um, like temperature wise, I like I, mean, I like cool places too, but like a um and i just feel like it's maybe an age thing because as i get older i just it's it's not that i like really like incredibly hot places but seeing it just being sunny outside knowing i'm not going to get like it's not going to the sky is going to piss on me it like really <laughs> cheers me up now and i just think yeah. maybe, maybe you reach a certain point and you're just like i do not have the energy to to be anything except for quite warm today but. <laughs> <laughs> well so changing the topic from weather you are here to talk about video games but first mm-hmm. i kind of want to know how you got started um because you're a big movie lover as well yeah i was um uh, I wanted to write, I guess, is 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 how I got started. So I was okay. um, I was at Sheffield University, um, and I did an English literature degree. I started in uh, '99, um, and when I got there, I mean, I'd always liked films. Um, and when I got there, the English department um, at Sheffield has the the um, 
the film studies or the uh, yeah, I guess film studies department. It's kind of inside. It was just basically two or three people who taught film um, inside the English literature track. Okay, they hadn't expanded. So others, some other universities, um, like Sheffield Hallam, actually, like the one across town, had a separate film department. But um, uh, Sheffield University didn't, and so I started picking up film units here and there and then um ended up um i just filled up as many as i could and there was a group of us at um undergrad level who um who did as much cinema as um you know like every there was basically one a term uh, semester and we used to we used to do that and then we we all went on to do the um the masters uh they do a masters in international cinema so at that point so i've got like a masters in it is technically in english literature but it's also you know the it's the the rubber stamp on it is uh international cinema so you know we do doing kind of italian and neorealism um japanese post-war wow um so some kurosawa stuff yeah yeah um lots of otsu um otsu was my jam um uh and i yeah so tons of um did loads of spaghetti westerns as well and kind of italian american cinema was the was one of the uh, units that I really enjoyed, and that was kind of about the intersection between, um, so kind of post neorealism, how uh, like how the Italian directors, perhaps like people like Leone or some of the genre filmmakers who were using things like the spaghetti western or the gangster movie, yeah, these these American tropes, how that kind of crossed back over with. Um, Italian-American filmmakers in the 70s coming through in New Hollywood um, uh, and just the kind of the the transference of stars, genre um, and ideas. You know, there's much more of, um, there's, I guess there's just much more of a two-way street than I'd ever imagined. So that, that stuff was all, that stuff was all great. And I kind of wanted to be an academic. I thought I'd stay in academia. Um, they asked me if I wanted to do a PhD and I said, yes, um, but I, um, I guess the stuff going on in the background was um, my wife, my who still why why we weren't married then, but we are now. Uh, we had um, <laughs> our uh, we have two children, and one of them is um, fourteen now. So um, he came along just at the end, just as I was finishing my um, bachelor's. Um, so there is obviously this kind of pressure to maybe not just hang out for five years and watch movies. Uh, so I, <laughs> so, so I needed funding. So basically I ended up taking, I ended up applying for funding one year, not getting it. Um, and just wondering what the fuck I was going to do. So, um, my wife was still studying and I just applied for a bunch of jobs basically. And I wanted writing jobs. And one of the jobs I applied for was official PlayStation two magazine, just a staff writer. Um, I applied to games team as well, but they never replied. Fuckers. Oh, um, I know. Games DM. Uh, God damn it. So I went down to Bath. It's the first time I'd ever been down to Bath. Um, and had, um, had an interview with, uh, someone I still work with today, actually, Richard Keith, who is at Yogscast now, strangely, which is where we're based. Um, and, uh, had that job for three months. And then at the end of that, so I think I joined them in May or June, 2004. Um, and then by the end of the summer, so I did my like three months probation or whatever it was, got told, Hey, things are going quite well. You can stay. Um, and then I, to which I replied, I've been given funding for a a PhD next year and I'm moving back to Sheffield. Um, (laughs) So I went and um, so I I did just go and sit around watching movies for a few years, um, but I was being paid to do it. Um, but it sounds just as excellent as your current job, to be fair. 
Oh, it's probably better to be honest. And it's okay. strange. <laughs> like I did. Um, oh, just it's it's strange. Every now and again, you think about things you did in your early twenties or growing up's a strange thing. I spent a lot of the, like uh, the last couple of years actually just writing quite a lot about memory. Um, uh, it's just a subject which interests me. It sounds incredibly pretentious. So apologies for that. But just because I think I reached a point. I think what you're in my twenties when when I was watching. Um, you know, when I was watching all these films, when I was getting into what I thought I wanted to do for a living, um, watching a new movie was like, I felt like I was collecting it, right? Like, so if I'd watched like a great movie, which was missing from, you know, like a, like a canon, like a Pantheon movie, like yeah. oh, everyone's got to watch um, Rome Open City. So I'd watch yeah. it and then it was like, oh, I've done, you know, I've ticked that off. Um, and I think that what I realized over the last couple of years was um, just that sense of, you know, once 10 years have gone by and time stretched, you rewatch, you know, like it's, of course I haven't just watched and understood that film perfectly forever. You go back and watch that film and you kind of realize that, um, your first take on it was absolutely a reflection of where you were and what you were doing and, um, and when, how you thought at that time. And now you watch it again and it not only gives you a brilliant sense of that film and who you might be now, but also, um, how you've changed in the intervening years. So I guess, um, I guess all this is a long way around to saying that um, I didn't finish my PhD, and I think, <laughs> but but, um, but also just that I spent loads of you know like I think everyone makes mistakes in their early twenties or uh, doesn't always do the things that they'd uh, hope that they would do in the way that they did them, and I think that I studied quite badly. I had no idea really about how much having a kid that young had affected me you know I was always quite a bright guy and I just wanted to um I just thought well I'm just going to be like a really good academic and write about movies I just love movies and I kind of just wanted a job that let me write and just do something I enjoyed which was just watching films and I just thought I could just power through um the fact that my life was completely different now um and it just you know like it was a gradual realization that uh that I couldn't do that and um and it was taking up much more time and that uh, I just was, and I think I was bad at dealing with it. You know, I don't think, I don't think I was horrible or anything to anybody, but I just, um, uh, I wasn't as kind of organized, prepared, determined, you know, grown up basically as, yeah. I, as I should have been. Um, and basically what I'm saying is I think that everyone has to, everyone has that period where they're kind of, you look back and you realize, wow, you were in like, you were just thrashing around there and you didn't know what you were doing. And at the time, everyone's always sure that they've got everything covered. Yeah. Um, I but have I no also, idea. I still don't. <laughs> it's. I mean, a lot of what's happened to me has happened, you know, by by kind of happy accident. Um, and I, but but I did sit down and watch movies for three years. You know, like that's something which I got to do, and I feel bad that I because it was publicly funded, right? I got funding from the um, arts <laughs> council, and I feel I feel bad that um, that I never finished, and I didn't have the discipline to to finish. I basically did all of the research, wrote about I think about thirty five thousand words it was about half of it some of it i didn't like and then i just kind of needed to earn money went away got a job and just never never came back to it but i think those of us who are privileged enough to be able to i mean like you know i never had tons of money but obviously i got this funding um when you have that time to just mess around and have like a formative period like that it can be incredible so i watched yeah. You know, I had this incredible grounding of I'd just seen all of this stuff and I just had time to think about it. You know, like and when you consider academia as like a um like a career path or if you're just serious about studying, um, 
and you allow yourself to take those things seriously. You know, I, and having been out of it for a while, I can look at people at university and who are studying and you kind of go like, all right, mate, it's just, you know, it's just a book, isn't it? Or, you know, but I think it, but if you, you know, when you sit down with a group of like-minded people and you talk earnestly about something which interests all of you, I think that's really, um, I think that's a really valuable thing. And I don't think people should be kind of embarrassed about taking things that they like or are interested in seriously. And I think that, um, you know, this, I just got a lot of time to do that and it really, um, it wasn't, you know, I don't think it advanced the arts in the way that uh, the Arts Council had hoped it would do, but in a different way, you know, <laughs> it's definitely helped me to, to do what I'm doing now. Fair enough. So oh, then I, I'm guessing you moved back to official PlayStation magazine. Yeah, I gave Tim Clark a call, uh, who was the editor at the time, who I'd worked with on official PlayStation 2. I basically said, coming to the end of my PhD um, funding, and can I have a job? And he said, Yes, you can. There's a re- you can be the reviews editor on official PlayStation magazine. Um, so then I, I, that's when we moved back, and we've not uh, we've been here ever since. So we moved down into September 2007, um, and uh, it just jumped straight on the magazine. And it's funny actually. This I've been thinking about that quite a lot this month anyway, because um, I came back to the magazine. Um, Leon Hurley, who had uh, replaced me as the staff writer on uh, official PlayStation 2 magazine, yeah. was um, was on the magazine and he was writing a review of uh, Modern Warfare, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. Um, that was the cover game. So that was my first. Okay. That, that had already been organized. So that's like, you know, if you place it in context, I came back. PS3 had taken a bit of a hiding because um, I just think, you know, really it's funny having gone through a cycle uh, now, like um, in the industry, not half in and half out. And you kind of see lots of the mistakes that PS3 made. And that loss of momentum at the beginning was replicated quite closely by what happened with Xbox One. Just make a few assumptions that the crowd, you know, the user base doesn't get on board with them. And then suddenly you're playing catch up from the beginning and it's really difficult to, so I loved PlayStation. Um, you know, like I had a, I had a PS2, I had an Xbox and a PS2, but, um, uh, I genuinely thought, you know, the PlayStation two was flying. It was a huge console. It was um, huge, absolutely huge. And then seeing that, how that could be, uh, turned around, how, how quickly people could, uh, decide that actually they quite fancied a 360, um, was, uh, that was that was where we were you know like playstation was really quickly trying to reclaim the ground was kind of i think that a lot of the strategies which resulted in ps4 having the start the good start that it did had already been put in place and they'd realized a lot of the mistakes that they made but basically that okay. generation was was a write-off but so we were there kind of um holding the up. ship up <laughs> trying to yeah, trying to get people on board again it's so strange being part of a um a single format um, anything so it's funny it's or- funny you say this actually because i i was uh, talking to keith from the guardian not that long ago <laughs> and mm-hmm. he was talking about being on a dreamcast magazine yeah man yeah and uh although obviously the playstation 3 did a lot better than the dreamcast but that whole sort of your rivals are flying ahead of you and you can't really talk about what's happening even if you enjoy the games that are on those platforms you can't talk about that thing you still got to be flying the flag for this sinking ship almost it's but and um and Keith that Dreamcast mag did incredible work and it reminds me of um I don't know if you'll thank me for saying it but the uh Matt Castle did an incredible he's always done a brilliant job on Nintendo magazines and post Wii you know that's that was a tough gig that was tough and, yeah and then uh, obviously official Nintendo on, magazine shut down and now he's on Xbox <laughs> yeah yeah and making from where I stand at least as good a magazine as uh, as my old mag um 
and it's just you know structurally it's just not it's just not the right time for it so it's tough but i always thought it's, it's strange being on single format mag is um i do think it is about flying the flag um but i think especially with um the official mags you know like uh, this is i remember tim always uh this was kind of his tonal guideline was we're not just here to say everything's brilliant we're the kind of the committed fans that certainly our readers are and we have to reflect that who are more disappointed than anybody when things aren't quite right you know like we're the guys who are really invested in this relationship so if a game isn't as good as it should be we're the guys who say like this isn't good enough for us and and you readers um so it was never to us a reason to and i'm sure there's um inherent biases and there's things you don't quite catch and i'm sure all of that goes on and um there are of course there are relationships commercial and otherwise which prevent entirely objective um reviews always going out but by and large the magazine we uh set out to um to just tell people what was good and what wasn't yeah. and then we sometimes got in trouble for getting it wrong <laughs> <laughs> so um, so now you you are still flying the flag but uh i would say in a lot more successful capacity i think um obviously you're a part of playstation access tv uh one of my favorite youtube channels i love the stuff you guys are doing so how did that so obviously you did first play which was like a future type expanding into the web youtube space um and that was wasn't as successful as playstation tv is um but how did that sort of come about and what was it like maybe transferring from writing all the time to now having to make videos and this sort of thing that maybe you hadn't done for a while it was um it was interesting uh (laughs) it was a strange one and the thing i'm laughing about is first play because um first play was um a step in the dark and it turned out that the dark was just like full of acid and monsters it was awful it was uh, <laughs> and it was difficult to work on I, I don't know i don't think the product was awful and that wouldn't be fair to the to the team of us who put it together but it was a well-funded um so this was first play was i guess um i can't even was it 2010 i guess i think so um, yeah 2011 and i think i think you were doing it then i thought i thought we might have been doing access by then but yeah but, okay. uh, but either way the um yeah it was around that time so we it, that was a project which originated within official playstation magazine and it was um it was a video project which was essentially supposed to replicate the market position which had let future be as successful as it was which is the cover mounts and the demos um so Futures magazines had always been good magazines, um, um, but the real kind of the reason that people bought them in hundreds of thousands at their peak, um, and certainly when I joined, I think the uh, <laughs> this is bad, isn't it? Like I, I don't think it was entirely my fault, but the uh, I think the the ABC of um, official PlayStation Two mag when I first joined was two hundred and eighty two thousand. Um, and by the time I left, I think it was about 45. Um, but so the, and, and the reason that changed, obviously that's the internet, but it's because the cover discs used to be, um, used to have a, you talk to anyone about the official PlayStation magazines of the past and they will say, oh yeah, the demo disc, because people used to be able to try two or three games a month, um, and they had no other way of doing that. And actually like, there was a, the license to produce those 
uh, Blu-rays, or I guess it was CDs back in the day, yeah. um, was exclusive to Future. So this was um, so the idea with First Play was that it would be um, it would cost ninety nine p. You'd buy it on the PlayStation Store. It would have video editorial content. Um, but alongside that, it would have um, exclusive DLC or access to demos. Um, and it was, I guess I like there's quite a lot going on at that time. I was kind of bored of being reviews editor. I just wanted something else to do. And the team on official PlayStation magazine, um, I think it was uh, a pretty strong team. I think we put out a really good magazine. Um, and there was, there was uh, I kind of mentioned Leon earlier. There was me, there was Leon, there was um, Ben Wilson, who went on to be uh, the editor. There was Tim Clark, who is now um, global editor-in-chief of uh, PC Gamer. Um the art team was Mark Wynn, who went on to launch Edge's uh, interactive edition. Um, he's an, like an incredible designer. Yeah. Um, Rach, uh, Rachel Weber, who is uh, who's now at GamesIndustry.biz. You know, like a really excellent team of people. Yeah. And no, no one was going anywhere. Like no one oh, wanted okay. to leave their job. There was no one getting promoted and going somewhere else. Like everyone really liked working on that magazine. So for two or three years. We just all did our jobs, which is a bit, I mean, I guess if people are kind of ambitious and want to get on, then uh, I, I don't think I've really done any job for more than a couple of years without kind of going mad. Um, yeah, I, just I, kind I get of, that. I get that entirely. I feel sort of the same way. You sort of, even even if it's a good job, you feel like, hmm, there are other things that looks a little more appealing or maybe I can sort of branch out to try something different. Yeah, exactly. What, what's next kind of thing? So, yeah. um uh, so we were always there was always talk about us launching a website and they did eventually launch a website and Leon did a brilliant job with it um, given everything he had to work with um, and that was going on but then this video project came on and I basically said I'd like to do this please otherwise I'm thinking about leaving um, so I was basically doing the I was kind of editorially second in command um, David Boddington was brought into Future who I don't know if you know Dave but he uh, he also moved to Yogscast a bit after we did, um, but basically came in as Future was uh, Future Games was uh, investing in and kind of working out what to do with video, um, okay. which is a uh, I mean that's a tough job for Dave to come in and convince a corporation where it should be going. And I mean I've got like a thousand different opinions about why maybe a lot of that stuff didn't work out, having subsequently gone to YouTube and taken a look at how things work you know, in the wild outside of that kind of structure. I think maybe the structure of how you make and manage magazines is a bad fit for how you should, the speed and the yeah. kind of, the and the quickness with which you need to make video. Yeah, you um, need to be literally on top of it all the time. And, and you need to be um, uh, personality-led. And I think that future was inherently uh, brand-led, which is, sorry, it's a horrible word, but, you know, like people didn't, uh, there was an element that people liked the writers that they knew in those magazines, but I think certainly on official PlayStation magazine, they were buying it, you know, for the cover disc, for yeah. the officialness, for the yeah. PlayStation. Um, so we launched uh, First Play as the, um, it was, I think at one point it was going to be called Official PlayStation HD. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> so it was the same, it was the idea was the same brand and it was the same values. Um, and it, but it was crippled by, um, just from the off because structurally we had quite a big team like i said it was lots of investment and everyone was very good at what they did um but it was a project that was unaware of what was going on in youtube at the time youtube was nascent it was just you know it'd been around for two or three years and it was it's about, nothing like the beast it is now but in those terms of first, content 
<clears throat> no, but those but those first kind of, uh, you know, like obviously game traders have been doing their thing in the US and there was kind of people moving into to YouTube. And I guess there was like a, whether, again, whether we knew it or not, there was a crossroads between is this going to become more highly, you know, more um, highly polished and well-produced or is it going to become quicker and dirtier and personality-led? Uh, and it just went that way and we'd gone We'd gone this way. other way okay. with a big team, and the thing that killed us was, uh, well, no one wanted to give us any fucking DLC, so that did not help. But the, um, <laughs> but uh, it's six weeks lead time, so we were trying to make uh, video content. The process of getting because we wanted to be on the store, so every time we uploaded an episode, it needed to go through this incredibly lengthy QA process with Sony. So we would deliver episodes six weeks before they actually appear on the store um which is kind of in line with a magazine production scale maybe even a couple of weeks uh out from that yeah um, can you imagine can you imagine doing that now like six weeks from now you're talking about uncharted 4 or it's like it's like sending a fucking time capsule it seems absolutely insane, insane to me. Yeah. i don't know um it was nuts and that's why that's why it didn't work so um what first play became was a lesson in scripting which was good like i learned a lot about video and yeah. um uh and humility i guess and also <laughs> like I, I guess like i'd always just had like i said earlier you know i was younger and stupider and i'd always just assumed um i'm a bright guy if i try really hard at something i would just be really good at it and it would be the best um and uh I guess I'd had a sense that maybe that wasn't true on official PlayStation magazine, which I think genuinely was an excellent magazine, but um, partly because it was single format, partly because it was official, you know, we didn't get a huge amount of recognition and, and fair enough, you know, you're not, you're never really doing virtuous, you know, no one's doing God's work in those magazines. Everyone in the wider industry just sees the, as you are servicing a market, you know, no one's ever championing, uh, hey, this guy wrote this brilliant thing in official PlayStation magazine. And then in first play, there was just this sense of just running into a cliff. Like we just, just <laughs> it was just like my, my, we were just fighting the earth. It was yeah. hard. It was hard as hell. It was uh, the production schedule was really hard. And as soon as it wasn't a success, there was no incentive for future to continue to invest in it. So as people left the team with kind of because um, it was you know for burnout stress whatever um i think i can't remember how many episodes we made uh, maybe 60 or something um and i just remember at the end just just being desperate to for it to finish just so we could stop you know everyone knew that it was <laughs> it was never going to turn around and become um a success we would do so weekly schedule which is different from the monthly monthly magazine schedule um and i was doing uh, most of the writing um with Matthew Elliott, who I knew at university, and he came down. He'd been doing some games writing, and then he kind of came down. Uh, he was doing, I think, four, three or four days a week with us, and then working with some other. And he's a game, and he's like commissioning editor on Games Radar now. Um, yeah. He survived. Um, <laughs> so it was a lot of writing. And then we had like um, a shrinking kind of pool of editors who included uh, Kim Richards, who is obviously now at Yogscast yes, with her own. Very kind of popular YouTube YouTuber for Yogscast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we kind of all um, started there. So, uh, so obviously that was a future deal. But then PlayStation Access was also a future deal. So what was the sort of difference between how PlayStation Access turned out, although you have moved to Yogscast since then, was it still sort of not working out under future? And it, until you went to Yogscast, 
it wasn't as good as it is now? Um, it's a, it was a learning thing. It was kind of a, an evolution. So um, on first play, uh, so as I said, so at the beginning it was launched by, so Tim was there, Tim Clark, David Boddington was there. Yeah. And they kind of moved away as, as well, I think the idea was probably always to launch it. And then I was there to, to kind of write and oversee the editorial stuff. And James Jarvis, um, who was like Bodder's number two over there. And he's still there at future doing that job. Um, he was doing the production side, um, and um, by the end, you know, Dave uh, Boddington was off making other projects go. Tim was back on the magazine. Um, so there was kind of more, basically what I'm saying is there was more going on at Future than just first. First play was the kind of initial um, reason for everyone to come in and try video. And okay. then um, CVG's uh, YouTube channel became a bigger thing because they'd realized that um, YouTube was uh, a, a, just an area that they should be looking at. Um, they did a show similar to Access for Nintendo, which they must have been pitching for about that time, which is where Gav Murphy, now of yeah. IGN. So that was I like think, Gav, Joe Scrabbles, and Matthew Castle, wasn't it? Doing stuff. Yes. I, I never really got massively involved in it. I know that Matt did some writing for them after First Play finished as well. But, um, but basically what happened was we, just, we didn't know what we were going to be doing for a while. I just remember a really weird couple of weeks where me and James were like, what the fuck should we do now? Uh, like we literally <laughs> hadn't. So that was the, and that was the E3 that that's why we made the, um, one of the first videos that ever did any kind of numbers for us. I remember it being a really big deal for, I mean, you look back now and you know, it's not, but uh, we did uh, an E3 montage video. It was James's idea to do, to get the Lonely Island song on a boat. It was just a year where the loads of the trailers were set on a boat. Um, I think it was, I don't know what year it was, 2010, I think it was. So we cut loads of the, um, loads of the trailers to just, we just took the song, you know, and just made a new video for it. Um, and we put it on the CVG, uh, YouTube channel and it did like, it did like a hundred thousand views overnight, which was just so much better than anything. We, we kind of toyed around with putting bits and pieces from first play up, just different bits and features. Yeah. And if they did like four or five thousand, we were, you know, we were like, wow, that's that's like a significant number of people watching some video. That's amazing. And this thing just flew and everyone was talking about it and it was on the front page of Reddit. Uh, and it was just because we were fucking about and we had nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> that's just how it always is, isn't it? This <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you kind of, it just changed our thinking. We were just like, wait, that's weird. And then obviously you try and replicate that, that success. We made some other videos that didn't do as well. Yeah. Um, but then in the meantime, I think, you know, Bodders was... Um, Bodders was organizing, you know, he was taking that first play team that was left and kind of uh, assigning different people to different projects. And the publishing team at Future, basically, once first play finished, they had, I think, because they had a service agreement with Sony, they weren't, they could, that's why we couldn't just finish because we were obliged. You had to do a certain amount of stuff up to a certain date, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. And because Future was losing a fairly significant amount of money just by keeping it in production. Obviously they were keen to finish. Um, and it basically got to the point where I, I, I was not involved in these initial discussions, but, um, uh, I think Sony said, well, Hey, we have this marketing initiative called PlayStation access, which was at that time, um, basically consumer outreach stuff. So they were, the idea was it was, um, gee, I don't know if you remember, but, uh, there was a thing called O2 priority, which yep. is, um, the sort kind of, of stuff that you would get for free each week if you did certain things for O2 or you had a certain contract. 
You basically sign up. Yeah, it's like a it's like a mailing list, but it's you know it's you hand over details so they can market directly to you. Because at this point, corporations understood that they really the best way to market to people in a social media age is to just know not horrible, creepy amounts about them, but have their email address and know what they like, and then yeah. you know we'll be able to send you offers that aren't shit, and you get some free stuff, and you get to know you know. So th- the idea was PlayStation Access was like that. So they would have um, they would have basically like little preview events. And they would invite um, selected members of the community um, who would then, you know, the idea being that those people were kind of more influential or kind of more active on social media. Um, And they had like they had um, the team over at, oh, man, I can't remember what they're called, but they make uh, Little White Lies, um, the magazine. They had them do like a little like magazine, little newspaper thing. And the idea was, hey, we could get um, future to do like a weekly tv show so they must have had i mean the budget knocking around was fairly significant um and at that point again youtube was not really on the cards it was much more i think the idea was that we would produce so uh, first play we had been um anyone who makes any video i think will understand how ridiculous this is we were making like i think there was five or six of us at the end and we yeah. were making a half an hour of video um a week but scripted so like that oh. so that isn't so it's not very much if you're just all you know playing the game, but we had this we had these stupid leftover from working on magazine editorial ideas about the style of the thing we should produce, and I think you know we talk about why access is different. I think it's been a very gradual process of just letting go a lot of those preconceptions and just realizing that you can just you know I never wanted to appear on camera at the beginning. Um, the voiceover was always done by Lucy Porter, who's who did an incredible job. You know, I sometimes look back at our old videos and how badly they're scripted. And the only reason they're even semi-watchable is because Lucy is, her delivery is so good. She's excellent. <laughs> um, and about stuff that she didn't know a lot about, you know. Um, yeah. But we, so we were, you know, we were scripted, polished, high production value, great capture, blah, blah, blah. Nobody fucking cared. Yeah. Um, uh, and we, so we were killing ourselves. You know, we thought we were living, and, and those standards inevitably slipped as the team got smaller, and we just got sadder about it. You know, we thought, well, this is this is terrible. And and like I say, like making that one video that everyone liked, you kind of was just like, wait, <laughs> no one no one wants a polished <laughs> review of God of War three. They just want something funny. Um, so uh, the important thing for me, I don't know, everyone else would probably see it differently, but the important thing for me was that I got to. When Access TV, I think when the offer, when I got brought into a meeting and they said, hey, look, um, Sony have said, can we retool the team from first play? We'll make something which is, at this point, their, it's their channel. It's not ours. So it's one step on from it's not official magazine. It's, this is actual advocacy. This is actually working for them. You know, it's what it, everything which we do will then be approved by Sony. So that was like... Um, that was like a reasonably big deal for me because, like I said, I always considered that we could say whatever we wanted on the official PlayStation magazine within yeah. within reason. Obviously, we're not yeah. going to be saying um, canker to rock. Yeah, so now canker. there was going to be some more limitations on that. Exactly. Yeah, and I was I fine about that. I, as long as you're all upfront about what you're doing, as long as you never pretend that you can do things that you can't do and give people... If you ever give people the idea that you can say bad things, then every good thing you say is alive but if you if people know and i think that's something that we got better at and we kind of tested some areas you know like again trial and error there was some error i think we um <laughs> we, we've had some stuff up i think that we've called reviews and we just should never have been calling anything a review that that kind of thing um but okay the, so yeah the, i understand yeah so at the beginning uh they said 
Nath, make what would you do if this was uh, if if you if you had a ten minute show? So we obviously we used to make in half an hour. Um, well, actually, I'm not even sure they said ten minutes. I think they said you know give us a short form scripted TV show with a few uh, segments. And I was like, okay, right. knowing what destroys a team over twelve months. Let's schedule and plan something which will not destroy a team. You know, like, <laughs> let's just do the opposite of what we were doing before, where we were killing ourselves. Exactly. So I just, I just had this opportunity to make it manageable, uh, deliverable, and we could make it good, and and uh, not just in the scope of it, but in the uh, just in terms of like how hard it is. There's not always a game that you can talk about every week, so don't do two, don't you know, don't promise two or three reviews because sometimes there's going to be one. So we had instead of that, we had game of the week. You know, we just had one game. There's got to be one fucking game we can talk about a week. Um, you know, we had a little new section and just like a comedy thing at the end. Like it was, okay. it was, uh, and, and we went out um, to, to events and stuff. So basically it was one step towards what we're doing now in yeah. terms of, I mean, it was the birth of access as, as an idea, as a, as a kind of, um, you know, like a name. Um, and it was the first time we'd been working directly for Sony. Um, and it was uh, the, the, the kind of coverage that we were doing maps, basically onto what we were doing at least when we first started doing youtube um so then we started having done about 60 episodes of first play 50 something episodes of first play yeah we then started uh weekly production very very similar on playstation access tv with a uh, very similar um some of the same team members um kim was there um becky preston who still helps us out with editing she was also there um and then we hired as we i i um i got given Dave Jackson, um, he came, <laughs> uh, he came on board just to work at future. He was, so he was working for Bodders really. Yeah. Um, and then he was given to me as like, Hey, here's the editor that you need. Um, and, uh, I called up, Matt had been moved on to other things, Matt Elliott. Um, so I needed someone to replace him and that's, I, uh, I had worked, with Rob Pearson. He'd come in for work experience. He'd done this cool thing, actually. He'd written, uh, most people try and catch your eye when they're doing work experience. Um, and he had written Pretend Magazine and he kind of, uh, he laid it all out and he'd put on, as a cover mount, he'd put a Kit Kat on. So he, and he sent it to everyone on official PlayStation Magazine. Um, and it had been on my desk for a few weeks, I think, even then before I called him in. And somebody else ate my Kit Kat too. But, um, but we got him in for, <laughs> for work experience while we were doing First Play. And he, he was working on wedding TV, I think. And so he could edit a little. Um, he could write. Uh, and he would turn out, I can't even remember when we discovered, but he was like very comfortable on camera. And he, yeah. liked, being, he liked being on camera. So um, <laughs> you, you can tell by Friday features. He does. <laughs> he does like being I mean, on camera. <laughs> he, he, yeah, but the, the weird thing was he wanted to be on camera. Not, or we all hated it. And okay. he really, he was... Um, yeah, I mean that happened a bit later. I remember the the first time we realised that was um, when he went to. We sent him, like I said, we had like an event. Oh, the, so the thing about setting up Access TV was every um, section you make, you're going to have to fill it every week. That was my main thing. I hate whenever I and it's funny when you gradually get to be in charge of stuff. Uh, some things you go, I can understand why this is difficult for people who've organized things that I've worked on in the past. And then sometimes you go, why the fuck does this is easy? Why did no one ever, you know, so that, yeah. so that you work, work by that guideline. If something is hard to get, don't promise it every fucking week. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so the idea was we do, we cover, we do one game, we do some news and we'll cover one event. And that's basically, um, an episode of, 
of access and the event was the hardest thing um so we sent him off to the opening of the harry potter studios the um kind of uh is it a leaveston i can't remember where it is but it's basically like it's a little kind of museum stroke kind of theme park kind of thing um oh yeah, and yeah. The, north of london uh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And they were they were doing a press day, and they were doing you know like they were providing lots of press with the same to camera opportunities. So it was like a junket, really. They had interviews there, but they also had you know you could walk down Diagon Alley, and they would film you, and you'd do your piece to camera. Okay, and yeah. we just we just sent Rob on his own, and they said, "Hey, we can film it for you." <laughs> and we were like, cool. And Rob came back with this like you know with this vt piece where he was like we would he was like walking he obviously got there they told him what to they were what the setup was and he'd like written himself a little and we did nothing like that at the time and we were watching it just going fucking hell right this is good good, yeah it's strange but we had we still had we had no presenter then you know we were still vo led um so yeah i remember calling up rob and just saying hey rob do you want to have a job um it's freelance but it probably lasts for six months at least and he said i've actually just moved to Westbury um, from London. They were just getting out of London anyway. He was like packing up his house. It was just really strange timing. He said, yeah, I'd really fucking like a job. That would be brilliant. <laughs> uh, and um, and then the way that access changed into what we're doing now. So that was the, the big transition to get us out of first play was the TV show was fine. I mean, it was, it, it was never going to explode anywhere um yeah because it was on it was a free download on the store but playstation 3 the store was um a bit of a mess and it was undergoing a big redesign while we were making access tv okay um, uh to make things more i don't know if you remember the old playstation store it was very difficult to kind of it was horrible search. it was horrible yeah i hated it i hated it so much it was uh, it was horrible it's the only and way i can describe the old playstation it was, store it was well it was it was hard to find things but for, i think from their perspective it was hard to show you things you know it didn't really have like a like a window display you know like um it was just so text they, boxes essentially with little pictures of icons they didn't even have video trailers or anything it was, it was not very good they did they were just fucking hidden you know like it was just really hard to find them okay um, and, it, and, and therefore it was also very hard to find us um yeah. and every now and again you could kind of book a space in the what's on section which is kind of they still have a version of that on playstation 4 now which is just like the bit that kind of pops up when you hover over the xmb um but generally speaking i think everyone was pleased with what we were making um, and the quality of it, and the quality was still high. You know, production-wise, the quality was higher than probably what we do now. I think it's fair to say, um, just in terms of uh, you know the amount of time we not not creatively or editorially, but just the amount of time that we'd spend on edits and yeah. ideas and yeah, okay, and sh- shoots and things. And um, uh, we were putting the sorry, <coughs> excuse me, um, <laughs> we were putting the episodes onto YouTube, um, and at first it was just a. This thing goes on PSN, but it also goes on YouTube. Let's see how it does. And they put a bit of money behind a few of the early episodes. So they were getting like 10,000, 20,000 views. And again, to us, that was pretty big. Um, but they were paying for them all. You know, it was never, people were never coming to find this content. And we knew that that was because if you're on a search based um, video, you're never uh, going to get, unless you have loyal viewers, you're just never going to get found and you're never going to grow in any way. If you're not, no. If there's no ease of access, just it's almost like the biggest barrier there is. People would have to the the things that people watch on YouTube. They search for games they like or things they want to watch or people that they like or want to watch. And we were VO led, 
Um, we had no personality on screen, really. Um, and we hid all of our content within the umbrella term, you know, PlayStation Access. Um, and, and it got to a point where uh, PlayStation, I think, realized that YouTube was also growing and they wanted a presence on there. Uh, and then the fact that we weren't doing very well on YouTube eventually... Uh, you know, it wasn't a success. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, growing on YouTube and it was doing fine on PSN, but going nowhere. So at some point they said, um, let's stop doing this. I think there was a change of staff and essentially the call was, we're going to stop doing access. It's kind of run its course. It was fun. Stop it now. Um, so we had a team of six and I think that, uh, you know, we had negotiations with Sony and we kind of said, let's try properly doing YouTube. We'll move away from PSN. And we'll just do YouTube and we yeah. can just do it. We can do it with three of us, um, which is, which was tough. You know, like we had to, they said, they said yes, or at least for, uh, you know, we'll try this. Um, we'll, we'll give you a few months. <laughs> essentially, That was, yeah, I think we had, I think we had 12, it might've might been six months basically to not fuck it up um <laughs> and and i was reasonably sure that we could do it because we've been doing stuff for a while then and we were kind of you know we were vaguely aware that all the kinds of content that we never normally let ourselves make where uh you know we'd started um scripting we we had at the end of the weekly run of tv shows we'd started being uh on camera instead of we weren't using lucy um and uh we were voing and basically it was transitioning to what it is now and we were kind of gaining their confidence of you know because you always kind of go well i'm not a presenter i'm not i'm not on tv i'm a writer um why would i be any good at this and the answer is because people on youtube especially don't really care like no one's expecting anyone to be there's that very particular kind of style on youtube which i think uh is I think there's like this generational gap of people who kind of can get it. And, you know, obviously my kids, it's completely natural to them. For me, I used to watch YouTube and go like, I get some of this stuff. It's funny. Some of it's terrible. And now I understand it at least, you know, I'm, I'm uh, fluent in that vocabulary of what the yeah. fuck is going on. YouTube. Um, <laughs> so, so basically we, um, we transitioned to, we stopped doing the weekly show. We started only, making things specifically for YouTube. Um, and almost exactly the same time, um, Holly came on board at PlayStation and she was replacing somebody called Mike Shittingford, who'd done a good job, but um, was, I think he was, uh, he was, he'd always been based in Nottingham and they wanted someone full-time in, in London. So Holly came in um, and she is brilliant for us because she is, um, Sony's a big organization and, uh, everyone there has always tried to help us as much as they can, but they've all got, you know, actual jobs to do. And what Holly's amazing at is just staying on people's good side, but just annoying them to the point where she gets the, <laughs> the stuff that we need. You know, she's a real kind of agitator is like in, in, in the best way, you know, yeah. like, and, it's, and I think everyone would agree there, you know, being one, of, one of those where you're like, oh, again, uh, okay, fine. Yes, you can do this. Or, yeah, can, can you, can you look at this? Can you approve this? Can we go here? You know, all of those things, which we would always be wanting to do in the past. Um, uh, and Holly was based in the Sony office all the time and she knew everyone. And, um, yeah, she, so she kind of started to make things happen as well. And then, uh, that was, um, I guess so when we consider ourselves to have started properly on YouTube, I think we had about 12,000 subscribers in, um, was it two? Th fuck! What year was it? Two thousand and thirteen. I think. Well, I want to say. Okay. I think. 
<clears throat> yeah. When did, um, so in the build up to PlayStation 4 launch, um, and that was when that's when what so I that's 2013, be, yeah, because PlayStation released in November 2013. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would be April that year, um, um, and that would be when I consider my current job to have started. Um, would be would be then, and that's when we kind of you know the only people left were Dave, Rob, and I, and I'd had to say. So a couple of the other people kind of got absorbed by um, Future into their other video projects. Yeah. Kim obviously went, went to the Yogscast and um, and had enormous success there. Um, and Becky Preston, who was the, the other editor, she has always worked in, you know, she's got fingers in many pies. So she, she kind of <laughs> went back to doing freelance work. It was, I mean, it was shit. Though, like, it was a fucking terrible time to say goodbye to them. But um, the what was left, you know, transitioned into something successful hopefully yeah well you know last month you hit one million subscribers so for all of what happened with first play and for all the hard difficult start you've had it's worked out (laughs) i think it's very safe to say that it's worked out for you guys yes thanks man it's been it's been good it's strange you know um there's that old job which is like a, a joke sorry that i think it's mark's brothers maybe but it's from uh i first heard it in annie hall which is um uh i wouldn't want to be uh i wouldn't want to join any club that would have someone like me as a member and like and that feeling i think has just always been with me forever i mean that's just how i live my life but that also for me it just also means that wherever i am i just assume it's not quite as good as i thought it was you know what i mean like yeah (laughs) if i if i've got a million subscribers you know with that with my team then it can't be that big a deal can it you know what i mean so like (laughs) there's always that kind of sense of imposter syndrome so but i guess objectively it's better than where we started so that's good isn't it absolutely so well thank you so much for telling me the history of access that was an incredible ride (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure many people who are fans of access will be listening to this wondering how it got started and how a show like that uh can get started with the barriers of being controlled by an identity that doesn't really want you to be deconstructive of their properties and that kind of thing while at the same time providing content that isn't that biased or that sort of thing so that was incredible to listen to so thank you so much for that so now (laughs) the reason you are here today is to talk about the games that you personally would take with you to a deserted virtual place so we're gonna we're gonna dive straight into it now and we're gonna get into your first game which is kind of uh appropriate considering what game got launched yesterday so let's listen to some music and dive straight into it
Okay, Nathan, so the first game on your list today is the 1993 first-person shooter Hellfest that was developed by id Software, and it featured the work of designers John Romero and John Carmack. It was shareware at the time, and at its peak, it seems to have been played by over 20 million people and was one of the most influential games of all time. And during the 90s, it was thought to have been installed on more PCs than Windows actually was. Um, It recently had a game in its series launched yesterday, brand new game. Mm. But the game you're talking about today is Doom. Nathan, please tell me why the first game on your list for the deserted place is Doom. Um, it's the first game I can remember playing on PC. Um, and it just, it's the first game, uh, I don't know. So you do get one of these things that's bound up, um, so completely with you as a, as a growing person. So, uh, when Doom came out, I, I remember playing Doom, the shareware thing was very important. So I remember uh, my family getting its first, um, computer, a, uh, a Pentium uh and i guess i guess that was in i think we got it in 93 we just moved into a a new house um and i'd just gone to secondary school in 92 yeah so i think i was in like i was i was um year i was like basically my son's age like i was year eight year nine um my my brother was two years older than me he came home with some floppy disks uh and put doom on the computer and um just I've been a first-person shooter kind of player ever since. Um, And there is something just about the speed of Doom and about the... uh, Considering how early it is and how it's not real 3D, the the sense of flow and momentum and, uh, and... But also the fluidity and skill matched with this uh really kind of overbearing incredibly 90s occult aesthetic yeah Um, there is i don't know um i don't know any game better i um and i remember that uh i I just played it all the fucking time basically like uh you know like my my kid my kid now plays fifa um all the time and I, i i would play doom and obviously i didn't play it online and i just played the same levels over and over again became like the, almost this meditative thing. I would put on Rage Against the Machine. I would play Doom. I'd, I'd whiz through these levels that I had played dozens of times before that I knew back to front. I knew where every enemy was. I could play the game from um, start to finish without getting killed. Um, and I remember being at, years later, being at my uh, girlfriend's house and her younger brother and his friend were watching me play. And it was the first time I'd ever, anyone had ever registered. You know that thing, like everyone likes being good at game, right? And like, yeah. you know, I'm not brilliant at games, but I do my, put so much time into, I could just kind of, with like I just run through it without really thinking. And um, they saw me near the end of like the game on like 200, 200 health and 200 armor. And they were like, are you cheating? And I was like, no, man, I just, I, you know, I just know doom really well. And it's the first time I remember feeling like that prick of like pride at being like, wait, <laughs> wait, maybe I'm really fucking good at doom. What's going on? <laughs> this is amazing. Someone's impressed by this most ridiculous of skills. Um, so, so can you tell me, because I read a really good article on your own website uh, about Rage Against the Machine and doom. Now I love Rage Against the Machine, so I, but you have a special fondness for Rage Against the Machine and Doom specifically. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I don't think I really nailed it in that piece. Annoyingly, even though, but I, I still felt uh, fine just reposting it yesterday. It was more, I don't know. I was um, like I said, I was I was writing about memory a lot. You know, going back and back over things which I had 
um, which had been big pieces of, uh, of, of growing up or kind yeah. of formative experiences. And it's nice now when you get taking a step back and looking at them, um, is I find it, I just find it really, um, meaningful. And I guess, you know, this is why everyone talks about Proust all the time, you know, remembrances of things past and just, and that sense that you get like ha- kind of half nostalgia, this kind of half pleasurable tingling remembrance but this with this new perspective so stuff like um i went back and i finished the mega drive games uh, a couple of years ago that i'd never quite finished when i was a kid um and they were just just seeing how small they are compared to modern games is so strange because they were such huge things to me when i was a kid and i was going back and i was basically i was listening to a few um different albums and stuff um that i'd enjoyed when i was younger and i, I was listening to rage against the machine um <clears throat> and it just so happened that at the same time i, I reinstalled uh, doom on steam because uh, i just got i got like a i got a new pc um <clears throat> and there was something about listening to rage against the machine and i had the cd as well which i think really helped um just for me to picture you know that incredible controversial artwork of the burning monk yeah um and it just as a it's partly because it's pre-internet so there's um Sorry to bounce around, but I just—I've been watching. I was ill recently, and I watched a lot of Adam and Joe, um, and it just—I've you know, been meaning to write about this as well. Like their show is like this repository of pre-internet materialism, um, which you know people say about Adam and Joe all the time, right? But the—it's—it's um, it's because they were talking about stuff like Select Magazine and R Price, and just um, like these physical things which we just don't yeah. need any <laughs> we um, just don't have any media and yeah, yeah. just magazines the way of, the way of kind of my cultural life pre-university is so much different to my life now so i had this disc this box of rage against the machine and just you know it's i think it's 10 tracks long it just seems really like just decimally just perfect um it's uh just lovely square incredibly designed i love every track on it and i know every track on it it just seems like this wonderfully um kind of uh paced perfectly balanced artwork like i just fucking love it and it's linked in my mind with doom and i did there's something about the um the just so-ness of how i think rage against the machine i just think it's i think it's probably what i'm describing is what most people say shorthand is just you know a classic i think it's a classic okay, yeah <laughs> um, and then and then there's something about doom and how Doom isn't Doom isn't perfect, but there's something. Um, it's by its own measure. I just think it just knocks everything it's trying to do so far out of the park. And then, so to me, they are these uh, huge pillars of formative experiences, which would which uh, independently of each other, um, uh, just they did work. They just these self-contained and beautiful things. But then the when you put them together, and I did frequently, um, there is something obviously really expressive about the anger of the game, uh, sorry, of the music, which has got nothing to do with video games or shooting demons, but um, it's, you know, this politicized yeah. uh, kind of West Coast, uh, you know, counterculturalism. But um, the that, that aesthetic just blended so perfectly well with um, my uh, kind of kinetic experience of uh, running around these levels doing violence um they they are just forever uh entwined so are you going to be uh playing the new doom uh listening to some rage against the machine uh thinking about how america is going to shit and there is demons all around you do you reckon 
Uh, I'm going to certainly play it. Did you know, it was funny. I was playing it the other day, actually. Uh, we made a couple of videos about it at work, and I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought. Um, it, it captures a sense of... Um, of the movement and uh, and and the anger of the of the first game, while obviously being, you know, like I tried to play Quake um, when I was at university, and I was just shit at it. And I, it's because I, <laughs> I I played Doom with um, the cursor, so I've got this really particular setup where um, you know, my right hand is on the cursor keys, um, my left hand I hold down shift because why would i ever not want to run and then my finger just pretty impressing shift just kind of slips down to hit control which is the fire button and just, then my just little... a gentle tap <laughs> just a gentle tap yeah and, and and my my uh left little finger is on spacebar and that's it for me and that's how i play doom and that's why i'm good at doom so as soon as people were like you've got to look up and down i was like with what fucking button am i going to be looking <laughs> up and down uh, so I, I can't play uh, mouse and keyboard shooters uh so but so i was worried about the new 3d doom um, I've only played it with a controller, but yeah, it's it's really good. And one of the chapter levels is called um, "Know Your Enemy," so which I took as an acknowledgement. I, that I, was I would, right be- I think so. It's got all to all be. All along. Yeah. Mean, what I, else can it be? Speaking of music, actually, I watched the the this sort of like a pseudo documentary about the music behind the new Doom with the composer okay. Mick Gordon, mm-hmm. and he posted a on his own personal YouTube channel, so I don't know whether it is actually an official thing, but it was like Doom Behind the Music Part 1. And my God, the music. If, if you enjoy like metal even slightly, or you don't enjoy metal, but you enjoy Doom, the music behind the new game is so good. Like some of the stuff he's doing with like nine string guitars and like electronic music is so good. And it really captures that sort of anger that the game really portrays to you while you're, you know, putting your fist through demons heads and all that kind of stuff. See, I I don't I didn't um, pick up on any of the music specifically um, when I was um, when I was playing it. But I which is almost a good thing because the music in the original Doom is so iconic. And it's only recently kind of I was thinking about this just the other day. I don't know why, but for the first time I was like, oh man, what they were doing was like using a MIDI, you know, synth board. They were, yeah. do, they were doing heavy metal. Like it's just never occurred to me. Um, <laughs> the E1 and I was M1, one, you know, classic riff that is for Doom. It's got like, yeah, it's got like string fiddling on it, but it's all obviously just little beeps. Um, <laughs> so I, I will pay, I'm going to finish Doom, the new one, and I will pay more attention to the music. Fantastic. Wow. That's a good start, an angry start. So we're going to listen to some music from the next game and uh, dive straight into it.
so just before we move on to your next game, Nathan, uh, we have the sort of section of the show where we talk about the deserted virtual place that you're actually trapped in. And uh, <laughs> although you are trapped there, um, I don't want you to have an un- uncomfortable time. You know, you you got eight games to play. Uh, relatively comfortable, no dangers or that sort of thing. Um, so you get to choose where you're stranded. Um, but it has to be a place from video games. So... Oh, We've had uh, people in the past, like Danny O'Dwyer has chosen the island from The Witness. Uh, we had Matt Lees come on the show, and he chose the world of Pokemon, the very safe and cuddly, na- naive <laughs> world of Pokemon. Um, yeah, so uh, we had uh, Nina Freeman, who developed Sybil and is working at Fulbright. She chose the island of Besaid from Final Fantasy uh, X and X-2. Nice. Uh, so is there anywhere that comes to mind for you uh, instantaneously that you're like, ah, that that would be a pretty good place to get stranded if I had to be stranded? Yeah, man, absolutely. I would definitely get trapped in Yorton from Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, for sure. So, so like, that very quaint English type of village. Yeah, because my, my, my first instinct was, um, uh, I, I remember... Uh, when everyone always says they want, you know, like they want to be trapped on an island or whatever, that, that they would like to escape. This, um, I remember at school once my friend saying, "Yeah, I, w- I would like that, but I would just like it if it was just all green fields." And I remember thinking, "Yeah, that would be much nicer than just like I don't even like beaches." <laughs> so I don't know why I was, you know, my desert island fancy was a terrible one. So and and since then I've always thought, you know, if I was trapped anywhere, my my idol, you know, if there's um. When when I get to heaven, obviously, um, <laughs> it will it will look like um, and and like I've been saying about you know like this um, essentially Proustian midlife crisis that I've been having. Uh, Yorton is is my childhood, right? So yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. It's the, it's the it's the kind of Cold War hanging over pylon heavy green fields of of England, um, and that is uh, that is where I could spend forever. Sure, that that would be great, and okay. um, uh, it's got yeah cars that don't work, beautiful sun, some some rolling hills. Most and Im- most importantly, it's got a pub. Exactly, and no internet. <laughs> no internet is important. As much as I work and owe my living to the internet, it's all it's also destroyed. You know, several things that I hold dear. So, well, speaking of the internet, you do need the internet for this next game that you've chosen. Uh, obviously, with the limitations of the show, you are only allowed to use the internet to access the game, but you're not allowed to chat to anyone. So, the next game you've chosen is, you know, the biggest MMO ever, the Juggernaut MMO by Blizzard Entertainment, and the fourth game set in the Warcraft universe. It was released on November 23rd, 2004, and it takes place in the fictional world of Azeroth. There is a new expansion coming out this year, and also a movie based on the game. It's World of Warcraft. Nathan, please tell me about Mm. World of Warcraft. Oh, World of Warcraft is uh, just fucking trouble, isn't it? It's, um, (laughs) I had to to put it on the list, because, um, uh, my experience of World of Warcraft is such a strange one. So um, I played it with, uh, I, I spoke about uh, Matt Elliott, who worked with me on first play. And yeah. he kind of, uh, we went to university together. You know, we watched the Lord of the Rings movies together. Um, you know, I read Lord of the Rings a few times when I was a kid. My dad read me the Narnia books. You know, my dad was like a massive geek, got me into all this, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a, I'm Your dad in a sounds cool. Your dad sounds uh, cool. My dad is cool, yeah. I, um, and, and I owe him like a lot of taste-wise, you know, like, but this um, lingering, you know, the reason I like sci-fi fantasy is my dad and we used to play uh, World, World of Warcraft, um, uh, like the point and click, not point and click, 
what is it, RTS, I guess. Um, uh, you know, World of Warcraft 3, we used to play together. So yeah, I was always prone to, you know, I used to paint little fucking dwarves and stuff. Um, I was always prone to this. This was always going to happen to me at some point that I would fall into <laughs> a, a world that was this compelling. But also, I, I mean, I, and, and a lot of it isn't just the systems. Um uh, and the kind of the channels of addictiveness that exist within World of Warcraft. It's the whole world. It's the whole kind of aesthetic. And me and Matt went on initially um, onto a role-playing server. We weren't on like a PvP server or anything. Uh, so we you were getting came- sucked into that world even more. Yeah. yeah. Although I think that the, the, the PvP stuff um, unlocks like a higher level of competitiveness and compulsion. Um, so RP in a way it's kind of like we'll just pretend to be these dwarves every now and again and we'll you know we'll skin some gorillas and we'll just <laughs> you know ha- have a laugh and and it's not like me and Matt ever sat in a pub fucking chatting each other you pretend dwarf speak or anything it was more it was much more tongue-in-cheek um uh, it, it was much Nathan more, the ironborn <laughs> it would uh, so I had a dwarf called Dolg actually D-O-L-G which um uh and and matt had like a he was i was a warrior matt was a hunter and you know it was stuff it was stupid stuff like matt would had programmed in a bunch of macros so that when we were in combat he could select like these ridiculous kind of text uh strings so like he'd uh i think the one i remember was uh whenever he was killed no whenever he faked death he he also pressed a button which made him say, "By your Mundi's beard, I am slain." You know, it was stuff. It was stuff like that. Really stupid stuff. Just trying to get into the world, obviously knowing that we're being stupid at the same time. Um, so what happened with World of Warcraft was uh, me and Matt played it together for a while. Um, I don't play loads of RPGs, um, and I don't play loads of. Well, this is probably the only MMO I've only ever played. So in terms of preparing, you know how you can build a character and just get them hopelessly wrong. Yeah. Um, I spent literally, uh, you know, I think I probably played World of Warcraft for, I think probably about, I'm not sure what the estimate is. I had two characters in the end, um, and I think I played them both for something like 50 or 60 days. Um, so, like, this is probably the game I've played the most ever, um, even though I have no particular, uh, fun, do I have fondness for it? I'm not sure. Um, so we, we played these first characters anyway. Up to a certain point, then Matt was just, you know, life stuff happened. He stopped playing. He wasn't really enjoying it. And I was kind of, I was a warrior because I didn't really understand how the classes worked. Um, uh, and I didn't really want to make friends with anyone else. So I basically <laughs> miserably soloed up to level. I just wanted to hit the, the cap. In the yeah. I just, so what, uh, so uh, I, that was 60 back in the day or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's, I think he's still fucking there. The poor bastard. Um, if, he's, <laughs> if he's not been wiped. Um, and it was awful. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no high level equipment. Um, I had nothing, just, I had stuff I picked up, obviously never did any raiding, barely did any instances. Um, I got into a few random groups and stuff, but I was a warrior and I just didn't have the, um, I didn't have the gear to tank. I was shit. Um, so no one wanted to take me anywhere. You know what I mean? I was just like this idiot man. Who's just this uh, up leper who was following people around. <laughs> Please yeah, let, was... let me, let me come with you. It's <laughs> funny because, um, you mentioned Matt Lees, you know, like I, um, Matt Lees was kind of um, uh, in the group of players that I played early Destiny with, um, with people like him and uh, Rich McCormick, um, who used to write for PC Gamer. He's out in Japan now as well. And Chris Thurston, who's on PC Gamer right now. And all of yeah. those guys had a much better appreciation than me of the meta of Destiny. They understood what they were going for. They understood like uh, what materials they needed. They just seemed to be able to, you know, in, in a certain extent, all of that stuff is like strings of the matrix. And I understood it a bit and I'd read guides and stuff. But 
they just seem to be able to look at that. And I just used to get so stressed looking at World of Warcraft and trying to understand crafting and shit and just being like, as soon as it's like, oh, you need this and this and this to get this and then this gives you this and you go here and get that and you combine it and bring it to a guy and he'll give you like, then you've got like one good shoe. <laughs> I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? Um, but so somehow I, you played it for 60 days. So you must have saw got a grasp on it by the end. That was one character as well. So And, and no, I didn't. No, I really genuinely. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, like there's quite a barrier, a community barrier in that game of, um, I mean, you, we've all seen the... Uh, like the raid videos of people just shouting, you know, that dots video. That was amazing. And But like this I, this aggressive idea that if people don't know what they're doing, then fuck those guys. Yeah. Uh, and I was too high a level to be that stupid. Uh, and so no one, oh, okay. no, one, no one had any patience for me. It was, And then eventually me and Matt came back to it um, and we played Horde characters on a PvP server. Um, and we found our level basically, which was um, – so I used to do – I used to get stuck like just mining and uh, – and skinning stuff. Uh, that's how I spent like just days, just days doing that. So with my new character, he was Crack. He was an orc shaman. So I was a shaman, so I could do a bit of tanking, but I could also heal. Um, Matt was uh, a rogue, so he could go invisible. So we were like quite an effective two-man unit this time. We'd obviously like learn our lessons. Okay. Um, and uh, we would, yeah, we could we'd kind of operate and, and have some fun and do some questing together. And the, but the most fun we ever had, ah oh, man, I can't remember where it was. Darkwood, maybe. I can't, oh no, I can't remember where the area is called it's like a low level human area uh, alliance area um and there's basically there's a quest that takes you from this kind of blasted haunted village there's a road um and it takes you to a graveyard and there's a few missions there and then just off that road you go to stranglethorn vale with all the gorillas and stuff that's like post level 40 area where it used to be in the back in the day um and basically me and matt would the most fun we had on this pvp server was uh, waiting for people to go on that mission uh and then we would pretend to be highwaymen so like we would jump out on this road um <laughs> he he could be invisible and i could turn into a wolf because i was a shaman so we would like just erupt onto the road and we would we weren't trying we weren't like ganking people we weren't trying to be real dicks we were like level 20 and we might take on like you know three or four levels 15 to 20s um like with the element of surprise like matt would cudgel one of them and then I'd be using lightning bolts from far away. And I think that, um, and then, you know, like I think he had a whole other fucking set of macros for that. So <laughs> like <laughs> jumping out and, and obviously no one else could understand what we were saying because you can't translate horde text if you're an Alliance character. Yeah, but, no, you can't, no. So that was the most fun. We did that for hours and that was the most fun, I think. You know, like the basically getting into PvP, but this really accessible level where we bullied people who were slightly lower level than us <laughs> at the game. But but in a sort of fun way, you know, we weren't trying to be real dicks about it. Fun fun uh, for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and even then, and even Crack, you know, I think I leveled him up near the cap, um, if not to the cap. And I was able to do some more instances and dungeons and stuff with him because he was a better formed character. And And I just... I think that's the thing about like not understanding the like the deeper level of the game and and how to get all those kind of um I didn't even understand what the tier stuff I still don't no fucking idea what it means and like let alone getting into a group that's going to do raids and instances over and over again to get like a full set of particular equipment and stuff or like be around a group of people that has high level craftsmen and you know if I bring them the materials out like just none of that stuff just all of that high end stuff was so far away from where I was even having played the game for as long as I did and but I still um, I still had a really good time. I used to do this thing as well. 
I was talking about not being able to use chat once I'm banished here. Um, and that's a problem for Crack because one of the cool things about Crack was that I, one of the things I tried to do was to corner the market in skins and rock in, uh, in Orgrimmar. So I used to go on the auction house um, and uh, basically, you know, like stone and rock, they are essential materials for yeah. certain sorts of crafting, but they're like they're the cheapest, stupidest bit. Um, but I used to try to aggressively buy all of everybody else's rock and then just repost it at my price. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and, it, and if you're on there all the time and you've got loads of money and huge amounts of space in your bank vault, it does it does work. So I was like, you know, people were putting it on for like ten silver, and I would buy it all and just list it for one gold. And if anyone tried to undercut me. I would just buy it all and then list it at my price again. And I did make, and all you need is you only need one person to have to, and gold isn't, you know, one gold isn't very much anyway, because people can sell a piece of fucking armor for a thousand gold. Um, but it's, all you need is one person to buy for every 10 that I, that I buy and, and put into a stockpile. I was like the EU of World of Warcraft. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and I used to come into the server and, and just go on the sales chat channel and write. I had Crex Crazy Prices and Crazy was spelled with a K. <laughs> Same of course. <laughs> crazy Prices are back. And then everyone, and really, I don't know why I said they were crazy prices because really they weren't low at all. I was <laughs> they were high prices. They're crazy because they were over market. <laughs> so and and so the last thing that I remember from World of Warcraft is about two years ago. Just going back, me and Matt were like, "Hey, we might do it. You know, just we'll reinstall and just do a dungeon and um, just go trying to you know get. Oh, I had to like redo all of my talents and stuff. Um, going into my bank vault and just and finding thousands and thousands of bits of like just rock. And being like, what the fuck was I doing? <laughs> well. Maybe, maybe for the purposes of your deserted place, we can allow you to sell things. You can't, Thanks, you can't talk to anyone, but maybe you can bring back Krog's crazy prices just one more time. Well, to be fair, no one ever replied. So <laughs> it's much the same as it used to be. <laughs> Are you, uh, so although you did a lot of solo stuff, I guess being on a deserted island, not using the chat, running through all the expansions that you've missed, soloing isn't going to be so bad for you, is it? Really? No, that's it's going to be you know a very fitting continuation of my World of Warcraft experience to date. Fantastic! So we're going to move on to your next game, which is uh, a completely different game. So let's listen to some music and uh, dive straight into that one. <laughs> on your list nathan is a sports game 
It was developed by EA Canada and published by EA Sports. It received releases for the Super Nintendo, the Sega Mega Drive, uh, Genesis for anyone listening in America, and PC throughout 1994. It's the third game in the NHL series. It's EA's FIFA version of hockey. It received excellent reviews as well, and it's been included on many uh, best of Super Nintendo sports games or many best of uh, Sega Mega Drive games. Uh, Even now, it's uh, NHL 94. Nathan, please tell me why... Out of all of the sports games you could have chosen, you've chosen NHL 94. Um, but it's again, it's a particular time and place, I think. Um, okay. So the, Meg- the Mega Drive was, uh, it was in my house at the same time as the PC. So we're kind of a mixed gamer playing console and, and PC. And um, so much of this is, uh, so much of these early choice games were um, a mixture of what my dad thought we should get because he was trying to make sure we didn't buy bullshit because games get, you know, it's weird how we always complain about prices of games, but um, I went through my Mega Drive box recently and there are games in there. Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine has a price tag on it for forty four ninety nine, which is so the same expensive. as you. Yeah, it's, just, it's the same that you were, you know, same pound price as today. So that, the, you know, the worst part as well was that the prices could fluctuate. Well, it, it wasn't like a standard price now where we have like either thirty nine ninety nine or forty nine ninety nine. Like back then, they could sell games at like seventy five pounds if they wanted to. It was totally different. And 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 think about the you know the inflation of back then. That's probably about seventy pounds. So it's there was a lot yeah. of money. So there was like this big don't waste your money. You know, like that was, I think that was just my dad's main thing. And also like okay. stuff that we could play, stuff that we could play to, together. Um, and there's, I, I wanted to choose an EA game because, um, but yeah, it's funny, like I, I've drifted in and out of games until I came back to the industry. And it was funny coming back how EA had just become this massive amorphous bad guy. You know, like the, the Reddit thing is pretty funny how it's been voted the um, most evil corporation in America and stuff yeah, like that. Um, yeah. Back then, um, on the Mega Drive, EA cartridges used to be a different shape to the main cartridges. So they, they, they were taller and they had like a little yellow tab on the side, like a little indentation. And um, I didn't know anything about, you know, I was fucking 12, you know, but I, I had no idea who Electronic Arts were or, what, you know, where they come from. But that tab to me you normally meant this game is going to be really good. Like um, we had um, like... Is it Starflight? I can't remember. The, the it's like a mining game. I don't. Think, they don't think they developed it. They just ported it. But had all the sports games. Madden was like a big thing. Um, the first uh, NHL, NHL PA ninety three was I think the first one. Or maybe we got EA Hockey before that. Um, uh, and you know Landstalk and just like which was a Zelda ripoff and just tons of these uh, little elect- electronic arts cartridges. And it and it just meant oh, you know this game's probably probably not bullshit. Um, s- so NHL 94 was actually, I had the mega CD version. So, um, <laughs> uh, so my brother, this is the thing about my brother's old, two years older than me, always better with money than I was and used to save up. And, um, and I remember really specifically going, he bought in, I think it was in Chatham high street, uh, in, in Medway where we grew up and he went to Woolworths and I remember him buying basically the mega CD had failed. Um, so we were able to get a mega CD two for like 99 quid or something um and it had uh so the it we, we had an original mega drive system so the mega cd didn't like it was built mega cd 2 was built for the mega drive 2 which was smaller so we had to have like a little um so the mega drive sits on top of the mega cd um, yeah. 
but the Mega CD two, if you used it with the original PlayStation, uh, sorry, with the original Mega Drive, it had to have like um, like an extended bit that you had to kind of screw onto the side that kind of extended the base so it was big enough. So it was kind of like this monster. Um, <laughs> um, but it meant full motion video intros, incredibly grainy, which I remember um, perfectly. And Ron Barr's real voice. Um, uh, Hi, I'm Ron Barr for EA Sports. Welcome to Sold Out Madison Square Garden. You know that kind of thing. And the game itself was really, you know, it's the thing. I think it's because uh, those early sports games, there was no good football game. FIFA, I think, came out, was in 95, and it was just awful, like, for for many years, a bad, bad game. Um, but they got hockey really quickly, and I think maybe it's because it's uh, because there's something to do with um, the speed of the game and the fluidity of the players on the ice. I don't know, like, it was so it was streets ahead of, it, of, of FIFA, uh, and I enjoyed it much more than Madden because it was, like, it was much um, probably um, because it was much more like football than um, American football. You know, it's like this continuous yeah. game where, you, where you're passing and shooting. Um, the So NHL 94 to me was about this competition just used to play. I used to like, I used to play it so much that I used to get bored. You know, I'd put it on easy and I would see how many goals are, and I'd put it up to 20 minute thirds. Uh, <laughs> see and, how many and, goals you could score. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the first time, like I'd sub all the opposition players off and stuff and just shooting the goal. Like childhood's weirdly tedious sometimes, isn't it? Um, and I remember once it got to a hundred, it goes into weird symbols. It can't actually do a hundred. Like oh, so right. stuff like that. So the but really, like, text characters would break or something. I remember it just either being like a squiggly line or like a question mark or something. But the, <laughs> um, but, but the, but the real kind of the stuff for me was when uh, I used to, my brother and I used to play, and when when he used to, and I was probably slightly better than him because I cared more. Um, but when he tried hard and we had good close games, that was you know there was no game I would prefer to play um, than NHL '94, and it was the they had something they captured the way that the players. I guess because it's this frictionless movement which you don't get in most sports and maybe it was easier to do with the kind of the limited kind of, you know, computing resources that they had at that time. Um, and there was what really made the difference with NHL. I think NHL 94 was the first one that it had it in. Was, it was called a one-time shot. So you press uh, B to um, pass between your players and you could like do this really slick, fast passing, like, you know, tick attack at ice hockey. Okay. Um, so just like hammering uh, B in a direction at the same time or something. You could really move it quickly. And, okay. And, uh, but then you used to be, it was the first time where you could, if you press B and then C before the player who was about to get the ball, puck, sorry, receive the puck, he would, just he basically like volleying it. He would do like a first time shot, um, okay. And it well, it just meant it, and it was the best way to score in the game. It was probably overpowered, but um, it was this. I don't know. Like it was the first time I had this real kind of sense of capturing this moment in sport and. Not just that you were just passing quite well and then shooting and it just happened to go in because you couldn't really direct your shots in the game. But the idea that you'd created this like normally counterattack breakaway moment, picked out a pass uh, and the satisfaction of um, I remember I, like I've done tons of interviews with guys who's made FIFA some really kind of like in-depth like why is your game good now kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, and they've always said the thing that like above all else that they have to get right is that when you score a goal like it feels as good as you know that is the ultimate aim of football is to score a goal so when you score a goal you should feel like you've done it and it's incredibly satisfying and i think that's what was captured in that uh in in the one-timer uh goals that you could score in nhl 94 so are you going to be okay on the deserted place um 
setting the timer to 20 and just scoring as many goals as you possibly can now. Yeah, man, I'll get up to four figures this time. <laughs> to squiggly line figures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> take, take, take that, Boston. Are you going to be okay without a football game, do you reckon? Yeah, I don't really play football games that much unless I'm playing with other people. I don't really play them on my own anymore. Um, okay. And I don't know I don't know why. I, they were quite... A, like, obviously, I used to... I mean, I guess if there was a football game on here, it would either have been Pez 3, which is the game, I probably football game that I played the most. We played a lot of Pez at university. That's kind of where I was introduced to Pro Evo. Um, and then I have not been a fan of Pez probably... Uh, it wasn't that FIFA became good and I preferred FIFA. It was that Pez was so clearly not moving, standing still from like all the PS3 Pezes yeah. to me play, play almost the same um, and just not very good. And then FIFA capitalized on that. And I think made a, you know, I think 2000, I think FIFA 09 was probably the first time that I really, um, really thought that FIFA was, was worth playing. So I'd either have Pez 3 or FIFA 10, I guess. But, FIFA 10 um, was a great game. I agree. Yeah, and and that was the one where I kind of, you know, spoke to them like, how did you make this not bad anymore? Um, <laughs> but yeah, and and I think NHL 94. I just think for pure fun. I guess there's no manager mode or anything, but uh, just it's the best. slapping a puck in the back of the goal. Exactly. Punching out a man. Fantastic. Oh, they, they actually, uh, the NHL I'd read, had asked Sega to remove the fighting in later versions of the game. So you'd have to have an early version. Yeah, so the so there's that famous bit in Swingers, um, the Vince Vaughn movie, where yeah. they're all playing NHL '93, uh, and uh, and I think uh, Vaughn says he's going to make Gretzky's head bleed, um, and that's something that so whoever won the fight, you know, you'd knock this guy on his ass, and then like he would be on the ice, and then like a pool of blood would emerge from his head like in these uh, fairly <laughs> old school graphics but in 94 i don't know if it was like steps gradually being taken because it was officially officially licensed you know like um yeah like fifa uh, yeah and uh i think you could still fight in nhl 94 but there was no blood so, ah, mr so, trick so, mr trick a big loss <laughs> well we're going to move on to a game where you can make people bleed uh, by punching them in the face and it's another sigur Mega Drive game, Genesis game. Uh, so let's listen to some music and dive straight into it.
So the next game you've chosen to take with you today, Nathan, is the side-scrolling beat-em-up sequel to Streets of Rage, developed by Sega. It was released for the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis in January of 1993, just before NHL 94, and it introduced two new protagonists. It reviewed extremely well and is thought out to be one of the best games for the Mega Drive. Uh, it's Streets of Rage 2. Man, Streets of Rage 2 is... Um... I, it's so much of it's to do with the music for me. But I, I still listen to the music now sometimes. The music when I'm writing, is so good. <laughs> when I'm writing at work. And I, I never, so I've, I've looked up who did it. You know, uh, the names are Yutso uh, Kashiro and uh, is it Matt Shiro? Um, I've written them down. Kawashima. Um, I, I've written them down very badly. Um, <laughs> and I, I just, it seemed crazy to me this morning when I was kind of thinking about doing this podcast that I listened to this music and just had never looked up who who made it and, and you know like some of the you know, we kind of spoke briefly about the doom music earlier on about you yeah. know how do you make a how do you make a metal soundtrack with like a terrible sound blaster card and um and the imagination that can shine through in some of this electronic music and obviously like you know um game music has become uh much more sophisticated and at the same time the offshoot of a lot of these early pioneering efforts to do something with these kind of limited technologies is that there's a whole culture of you know 8-bit sound and um, different kind of electronic areas which have been kind of influenced by it but i think even though it's clearly i mean it's um the streets of race 2 music is clearly aiming for it's like this, this grand kind of and it's very um it's very emotionally expressive and it, but it's also obviously based on a kind of a it's kind of this japanese filtered simplified version of hollywood scores um and yeah absolutely yeah but i don't think it would be any better if you took these tunes and played them with a symphony uh sorry with an orchestra or um or kind of you know if you modernized them there's something really like there's this really emotional uh kind of <clears throat> maudlin soulful tone that comes out of uh I, they're not instruments are they i don't <laughs> you know no like it's i i, I kind of get I, I kind of get what you mean. Uh, like we see a lot now, uh, especially with like you know the London Philharmonic Orchestra, the um, Distance Worlds, which is all Final Fantasy based, which makes a little more sense. But there's nothing like listening to the sound chips of both like the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo, and listening to the music as it was because it doesn't sound like anything else. It doesn't sound like an instrument. It it's its own little robot that just speaks music at you and. Uh, there's something about that over it being changed into normal instruments. And I think it's that, that thing, again, we're far enough away now that we can view it independently. So obviously at the time, what it, what that music, uh, you know, the, the um, conditions of the production of that music were, can you make good music that sounds like the cinema come out of this machine? And these people <laughs> said, we will, we will try very hard. And now you look back and instead of, instead of only seeing the limitations of it trying to do something that it can't really do, it, it has this completely, um, you know, like individual, it's his own thing. It's completely independent from that. And it sounds amazing. It, I don't, I don't, it's so weird because uh, I don't know if you saw, but last year there was like a Red Bull documentary about music, game music from Japan. Mm. And um, very, very good documentary about all the, like, Hip Tanaka and all the famous, like, uh, producers of music for, you know, Capcom, Sega, Nintendo, and all that kind of thing. And they're just talking about 
this is the process and how they did it. And they would just like play tunes on a keyboard. And then they'd be like, okay, so now I'm going to take those keys and put them into this thing. And they were essentially programmers and they had to program their music. So I, I don't get how you can take like playing music on a piano and being like, okay, so now I need to convert this into basically computer code and, and yeah. have this computer play certain beeps at a certain time while sounding like instruments. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's wrestling something really unusual from uh, from the machine, which I think, you know, like, and I think so much art. And yeah, can you imagine, you know, in 92 saying the music for this game is art? You know, like, you know, you'd have got beaten up. Um, <laughs> well, you'd but be it, laughed but it at, is. that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. But it, but, it, but it absolutely is. And it's because so much, this is kind of what I love about where we are with games now. Uh, and, you know, like, uh, again, like, sorry for being so... Um, consistently kind of backwards looking about this stuff um, <laughs> that's okay I, that's I'm, what this I'm, that's what this show is all about i'm honestly not having like a massive midlife crisis but the um <laughs> don't don't start crying <laughs> the, um, there's there's been so much of being involved with games and you know like as i said so i've like studied cinema yeah for years and years and years and there's this sense of cinema is this kind of um culturally and critically mature medium and games is like um uh it's a, oh, it's a huge and not well-covered topic, but um, has often, um, like, more than anything, has there's been this sense of uh, lagging behind, but inside games, you know, like, people feel like it's not taken seriously or yeah. the medium, like, people get depressed when, you know, stupid shit comes out and um, and there's a sense that we're we're lagging behind and there's always this sense when you know like having been in the industry of like this constant technological arms race and that's like the dominating factor of the field it's about selling it's about getting more powerful uh, machines and selling um, ever more kind of triple uh, a expensive experiences and i feel like over the last kind of i don't know it's actually quite a long time now maybe three four years um you know like the increasing popularity of um, indie games and the proliferation of platforms so like i think people experiencing things on i think we probably helped because it was like so wait you don't you know this is basically the same as your last fucking machine with like a motion controller yeah um and people enjoying the experiences more and i think people have become a lot more accepting of not just the latest thing but what's actually good and i think that in turn has led us to look back at certain um periods and again see them i remember getting to, to future and it's saying to someone I, you know, like I've still got a Mega Drive at home, and then like, and then I think it was in like this is in two thousand and four, and then I'm being told like, what the fuck have you still got that machine for? Like, what, <laughs> what, what, what could you possibly like? It was kind of like a jokey pub conversation, but it was like, what on earth are you doing with that relic? Because the whole point is, you just, you know, you, we move on. You like move that on, stuff is it, that yeah. stuff is dead, and it's, also because there's there's this sense of how clunky old things are in games. You're always like, because we're so iterative, because there's always like, this is, we're already talking about like Streets of Rage 2. There's like, an, uh, you know, there's more sequels on this list. And, um, and there's always that sense of this one is slightly better than the last one. Like, so how do you ever pick the best FIFA when every one is literally an improvement on the one before? Yeah. And obviously now we can look back and say, well, actually, obviously you have to set it against the context of the, and, and eventually what emerges from that is a fairly complicated picture. And it's not always easy to see but there will be certain peaks which were further ahead of the curve than others and i so i guess what i'm saying is i think that it's possible now to look back at something like streets of rage to see these people working within this is how so much are in like a you know in commercial spaces gets made 
people working with particular tools under particular restraints um, on small teams, managing to wrestle something extraordinary, which you, they might not recognize it as such, and, and, and no one else at the time who buys it because they like punching thugs on the street in Streets of Rage uh, 2 might realize it, but it's just like created this incredible thing. I absolutely get that because we are definitely a culture, especially gamers, uh, of there is a massive emphasis on nostalgia. Um, but there's also this, oh, why would you play that? It's, you know, it's not as good as the newest version of this and, and that sort of thing. And when you talk about, you know, people who made music, th- these are musicians. They're not, they're, they're creative people by nature. And the fact that they could make something not only good out of this difficult situation using very limited hardware whereas now you know you can make talking about the doom music for the new game you can make this amazing metal soundtrack with just guitars because you can just play it on a guitar and then input it into a computer but back then having to really think about how you can take your creative ideas as a musician and then be like okay well i can't do this because i'll never get it into this or i have to try and look at it from this angle really is an amazing feat and i i like that this choice is more about the music than it is about the gameplay because it it really tells the story of games at that time were not just their gameplay they were they had very limited artwork because of the technology so they had to have good music good gameplay it was almost like a very basic level mm. and as long as yeah, they yeah. nailed that the game was good I, I, it's, <laughs> it's hard to describe it, it's really hard it's, to describe it's such a well it's a strange to compare it to the expectations that we have today where you have these relatively small teams making quite small games um on a small production schedule and they would come out reasonably you know that you know it wasn't uncommon to make a game in a few months with a team of you know a dozen or so yeah. on the on the mega on the mega drive and you could and and you, we were talking about how much those games cost you know like the 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 industry was just so different then it yeah. was much more there was there were more games and they were trying different things and obviously the industry has coalesced around this kind of hollywood model of um with plenty of healthy variety currently but like of basically huge teams on two or three year production cycles making yeah. all singing all dancing many featured monsters now and yeah so and me you're right like the gameplay i, I mean i like streets of rage too like it's a fun game that i can run through in, in two or three hours but i would do it basically i could probably happily do it closed with my eyes closed just so this is more just uh turn on the mega drive uh build your fire for the island and listen to the music kind of choice Exactly, and then do some fishing. Excellent. <laughs> well, now we're going to move on to a, a game that is the epitome of development today, like we were discussing, and a bit more of that Hollywood feel. Uh, mm. Also, like Doom, it's just received another game in the series this week. Well, last week. Um, so let's listen to some cinematic music, some orchestral music from this next game, and go straight into it.
So this next game is a complete juxtaposition from what we were just talking about, and uh, gives more light on what development is like these days. It's the cinematic epic developed by Naughty Dog and published by Sony Computer Entertainment. It was released for the as a PlayStation exclusive for PlayStation 3 in October 2009, and it's the second game in the Uncharted series, and it follows main character Nathan Drake as he trots the globe in search of Shangri-La and the Sinchimani Stone, following in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Uh, it was praised for its technical ability, and it received almost perfect scores from most publications, and to date has sold over 6.5 million million copies worldwide uh it was included in the nathan drake collection uh this year or last year um it's just received a sequel well a another line in the series of uncharted games uncharted 4 you've chosen uncharted 2 i certainly have yeah it's really good (laughs) (laughs) it is really good it is really really good i agree It's it's funny jumping around um in time with these games and there's um it's funny moving from Streets of Rage 2 and then I think there's a, there's probably, if you look at all the timelines, I am making a point here, but the, uh, there's like a general, I basically skipped a generation um, and uh, and I think it's because uh, the industry, we were just talking about how things have moved on from Streets of Rage 2 and how they, how things yeah. are maybe in, a, in the mature industry are kind of, you know, this AAA big production um like massive scale production in these big studios um and i think on the way there um the i think there were you know t- like th- there was this i guess teething trouble you know like i think there's this whole era of games which is really uh like wh- basically when people were trying to get good at 3d and it was just really hard you know like we were people were pushing right up against the edges of what could be done that wasn't rubbish and i think it's really i find it very painful to go back to kind of first-gen PlayStation games that try to do what we would consider to be kind of, you know, like modern 3D settings and open worlds. Yeah. Um, they're ugly as all, ugly as all hell. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think the reason that I then come to Uncharted 2, I like the first Uncharted game, but the reason this kind of stands out for me, I think that um, the uh, by this time things had kind of settled. And I think that um, obviously everything's in flux all the time, but the that generation to me that kind of xbox 360 and playstation 3 when i think about that when i think of what that generation did um i think that it kind of i've written about this as well so just in case anyone thinks i'm just saying things i've already written down and it's, it's all familiar <laughs> but i think i think that that generation like perfected that 10 to 15 hour single player cinematic experience yeah i think it was the it was the first time that those experiences could be done with the music and the production values um that were at least comparable to cinema so people were accepting the same kind of grammar and tropes and not just you know saying this is trying to be you know something that it can't be um and this is the best one like this is the best of those i think if you were gonna if someone said what is the best and it's and it's nice to me as a man who's busy with two kids I flew through Uncharted 4, which is also excellent. I mean, like, seriously excellent. And maybe with a bit more time to digest it, this, they might have made this list. But um, there's something really nice about knowing that I'm on a little adventure that's got a close at the end. You know, I'm not going to be fucking mining rock and selling it on the auction yeah, house. Yeah, you know that there is, a, there is an already a predetermined path from A to B. And as long as you just keep following along, you, you, you know you're not going to go out without you're not going to go outside of this time limit 
You know, you could sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to play one chapter of Uncharted. And you know, it's going to be like half an hour to 40 minutes. And you're going to be like, that was a really good experience. And now it's time to go to bed. And that kind of thing. It's nice knowing that you're starting something you will almost certainly have time to finish if you're enjoying it. And it's nice that just along the way, hundreds of incredibly talented people have tried to just fill it full of things that you might like. That's a really nice feeling. Um, And and they did do that. And I think Uncharted 2... um, was uh so i had um talking about kind of when i came to the industry back to the back to official playstation magazine so i was the reviews editor there and my first review actually was the we did uncharted which i'd not heard of before that was my second issue so the first issue was call of duty modern warfare um and then and then the second one was the first uncharted game and i and i liked it it was you know it was a good game clearly like high quality um and naughty dog i had uh you'd put out on twitter the other day that it was one of the first games you'd reviewed for yeah, yeah and yeah, i yeah. asked i had asked you uh what did you actually give it and you were like oh i think i think i gave it a nine out of ten i think yeah 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 <laughs> definitely. No, it was a nine and i think i mean it might have been and this is kind of what i was saying about like everyone sets out to just tell the truth on that mag but um i think because of where playstation was when you get something like that you maybe hold on to it. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's any, I certainly wouldn't have given it less than an eight. And I was playing it. I finished it last night on that playthrough. And there's, the end is so good. Like it's so well put together, kind of character wise and yeah. setting wise. I can see why it just leaves you with this, the music coming in. We're talking about music, the music coming in at the end. And it's a slightly more, it's not like triumphant. It's a slightly more kind of resonating, kind of emotional rendition of the theme. And honestly, like you kind of boating away into the sunset. And I was like, fuck, man, this is like, that is a feel good feeling. That is a, I can see why I turned around and said, this is a night. Um, <laughs> I was right. <laughs> yeah, I love being right. That's more, more important than anything. And then Uncharted 2, you know, like I insisted that I reviewed it and I had to go to Sony's office um, and sit with, uh, like, not, not, he wasn't like in my ear or anything, but there was like uh, Naughty Dog, as they have become more successful, they've obviously become completely understandably kind of more protective of their games. Yeah. Um, so while Uncharted kind of, I just remember it just going out to everybody, I think because we wanted to get access to Uncharted 2 as early as possible, uh, I think the disc had to always be in the presence of this man. He had to be in the same office, if not the same room. And so I was just, I sat in a room basically on my own for three days playing Uncharted 2. Uh, and there's this weird feeling, man, when you're the first person, that, certainly that you know, um, outside of a studio to play a game and there's no one you can talk to about it yeah there's this amazing it's, game and you're like oh my god i need to talk to someone about this right now well, ha- one step before that when you're like i think this is fucking brilliant but i'm not sure like you know what i mean like it's weird how <laughs> you are in that vacuum and and it's fine if you like if everything is a seven or an eight it's fine it's like yeah that game is pretty good i pretty enjoyed that when you think something might be incredible you're like but you I want just to clarify to, just I in just case. I just want to talk to someone about yeah. this. Yeah, can someone else see this? I remember playing the first Batman game um, in a similar kind of environment, you know, like lockdown. Like, okay, uh, yeah. Uh, and just being just like, again, that was fucking great, right? Was that great? I th- I'm pretty sure because I thought it was going to be shit as well because it just came out of nowhere. I didn't know who Rocksteady were. And, um, but yeah, so I'm trying to, the, the opening train level, um, and the way, the confidence with which the, for people who don't know, it starts uh, in media res, like starts in the middle of a story. Nathan Drake wakes up. It looks like he's just kind of sat on a bus. And then it turns out he's sat uh, upside down <laughs> on a train that's hanging off a cliff. He then falls to the bottom of the train, barely grabs on and then climbs up 
this ruined kind of carriage. Yeah. Uh, and then the story flashes back to how he got there. Um, and it does this, um, the confidence of that moving between the, it, it's not, it doesn't do it. You know, like I think that, you know, post Tarantino, so many films were just like, let's have some flashbacks. Let's have some split timelines. Yeah. And it doesn't fit. It's not, it's not my first independent movie style, like messing around with the timeline. It's got this, uh, it's carefully structured to, it really drives, um, really drives the, the narrative. It really makes the story, um, takes the story out of order, but gives it this kind of impetus, which it might not otherwise have, have had. And, uh, it's, I mean, it sounds easy and basic when, you know, when you're looking at it afterwards, but the choices that they made about where to come in and where to come out, um, it's one of those things isn't it it's uh, do you do, does a player want to start a story where they're basically talking about marco polo and who marco polo is for half an hour probably I not think that, i think that's the thing you know there's so many um bits of the uh, makeup of uncharted that are incredibly generic and and played out and i think the naughty dog was smart enough to know that and they were smart enough to know that i mean people are interested in that adventure and they do want that kind of you know like i think if the success of dan brown's books has taught us anything is that, that that kind of you know like historical secret um conspiracy yeah, that theory sort of mystery that- items almost supernatural items of people like marco polo king arthur Jesus, although that kind of thing, yeah, the mystery the behind kind of those semi, things, semi, yeah, the quasi, you know, like mystical stuff. That stuff flies, right? But, um, but it's also in a, it played out in many ways. So this, um, re, you know, just yeah, it just reinvigorates the whole thing. But more than anything, it's just this. It just got this sense of how confident and accomplished they are at what, uh, what they were doing. And it's a bit, it's a big, big jump from Uncharted one. Um, and at the same time, I mean, I've like. Uh, been lucky enough to speak to Naughty Dog, um, like uh, lots of different people at the studio over the years. Had tons of really good access to them, and I've always been, I've always come at it like you guys make these amazing stories. Let's talk about that. And and um, always it's strange when you go into an interview and you 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 know you plan out all your questions and you're like you'll probably say this or that or and then you know you plan the whole thing how many times i've been kind of frustrated when i've been talking to them about what i consider to be the best things about their games and they talk to me about technology a lot and just how important it is um the, and i think that the horrible selling points like uh, we've spent ages developing facial technology and i mean more more than that weirdly like i mean you know i kind of that's i mean like i think I kind of went in taking all that stuff for granted, I guess, like, and also kind of having, because I'm so keen to break away from that, you know, we talked about like the arms race of blah, 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 um, the arms race of video games. But for them, it's one and the same, which is something I didn't really, you know, I only grasped after I'd kind of had these various kind of chats with them. And it's more, they, they kind of say like people expect certain things from a Naughty Dog game. We need to have like everything else that we're trying to do kind of story-wise or setting or, um, you know, in terms of the use of characters within our stories. is This is over here. But unless we do that while we are also getting more out of PlayStation yeah. than, than any other developer, then people will be upset with us. And they see themselves as a technology company as well as a storytelling company. Do you reckon that's because, uh, they, you know, they had Amy Henning and they were like, well, we have Amy Henning, one of the best writers and story constructors in the business. Uh, we'll just let her do her thing and then we're going to solely focus on making sure this is the best looking game that it possibly can be. I think it's more... Uh, root and branch than that i think it's much more like um uh, so i did an interview 
uh, I've spoken to Richard Lamarchand, who was the co-lead designer on Uncharted 2, I think. Um, uh, so British guy who worked at Naughty Dog for many years. And he was talking about his kind of early career going over and working. Um, oh, I don't want to get this wrong. Um, was it Crystal Dynamics? They do the Soul Reaver series. And I think that that's where he first worked with Amy. And there was this... Um, uh, the genesis of all of that stuff was um, about the same time I got a PC, right? Like so, um, and everyone was doing full motion video. And um, there's a very good book actually called uh, Is it called Generation Xbox? I want to say um, by I, don't know. <laughs> I think it's by Jamie Russell, who was um, a longtime contributor to Total Film, um, and it's basically um, it's a book about the various missteps in and the relationship is the relationship between the video game industry and Hollywood and how for many okay, years, yeah. um, how for many years, uh, it looked like they were so similar. There should be some obvious point of synergy or overlap or, you know, like we can somehow we can sell in bits of movies to games or we can make tie-ins or how there must be some kind of technological overlap where they they can talk to each other. And basically, how none of that, you know, none of that's true because games are uh, an essentially interactive experience and you can't just put bits of video in them and then then be good. I think, you know, people react, uh, even now, people don't really like cutscenes. They like interactive story and about whether games can really do story and those sorts of things. And it's, it's a very good book, but it kind of, the genesis of what Naughty Dog are doing, I think goes back to that idea. Um, Richard, when I was talking to Richard, it was the first time I'd heard the term Sillywood, which is this combination of Silicon Valley and Hollywood, where it's, you know, this idea uh, of that, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that okay. convergence to tell it, telling Hollywood standard stories within these virtual worlds but basically during that kind of uh, dark ages is the wrong word but during that kind of period where I was kind of you know none of my games are from where 3D was uh, happening and you know games technologically moving forward very quickly um, I think it was very difficult to uh, for games to kind of provide the technological basis to tell any of these stories but i think that was always the plan not just for amy but for um, richard and lots of other people and i think naughty dog always considered themselves capable of doing that and telling those kind of i think they've always so, considered themselves so i don't think there's a, as big a divide as that is what i'm saying i think that i just think that they fundamentally see themselves as doing both as being poly polymathic yeah if that's i can sort of um, understand that because the way I approach Uncharted, and especially because I'm playing Uncharted 4 right now, is the gameplay has always been subpar to me personally. It's very rote. It's very... Nathan Drake climbs things, they break, he shoots some people, the shooting feels okay. Um, mm. For me, the reward has always been to watch the cutscenes. Yeah, like you yeah, play yeah, through the gameplay. That. The gameplay's the gameplay's fine. The gameplay is absolutely fine. It's not bad, but it's not great. And that's what's always weird about the Uncharted series to me. I don't think the gameplay is is great. It's not the best shooter. It's not the best platformer. It's but it's all of these things mixed together in one nice package. But the story is really good. But what goes hand in hand with that is the amazing cutscenes or the amazing set pieces that you don't have any control over most of the time, or you have sort of a pseudo control. But they feel like rewards to me. Like when you get through a section, you get treated to this 
almost movie, like a, this really cool movie. And because Enchanted 4 now is so lifelike, it's so amazing in its technology that every time I finish a bit of gameplay, I get to watch more of it. And I'm like, this is so good. This is so, so good. I mean, I, I, lo- I do find the cutscenes, especially in 2, you know, the, the, the writing scene, like... I started two last night again, and you know the writing seems to have gone up a notch, and everyone knows their characters a little better. And I think yeah, you know there's absolutely um, Nolan North is uh, knows where the line is for Nathan Drake, and he can make him funnier and blah blah blah. Like everyone's kind of you know second time round is just easier for for everybody. But I think the um, I think what for me is I guess it's that thing of them not being into. I don't think there's. I, I think I, I kind of agree with you. The shooting, certainly in the first one, isn't great. And for me, I think that when the series really comes alive is when there are moments that I can't quite believe that I am controlling. Like when I'm like, fuck, I'm, I'm going to do this. Am I like, so uh, I think the train level in, well, partly the opener in, in two, I was like, yeah, you, you, this cutscene happens. It seamlessly transitions into dangling off the edge of this cliff and then and then it goes like so now you're going to climb it and you're, <laughs> you're like, like what so, wait <laughs> i'm on. doing this i'm doing this bit that was just a cutscene. that's amazing yeah. or or when you are moving along that train which is itself moving through this what was you know this beautiful bit of scenery in the himalayas um and you know talking to or seeing actually i saw richard talk do, he does these there's a you can find the videos online actually these amazing kind of post-mortems of uh they're basically hour-long presentations explaining the making of i think uncharted i think he's someone for uncharted two and three um and he talks about this technology this team within naughty dog developing the technology that would allow a physical object like the train to move through an environment while still allowing nathan drake and all of his combat and traversal mechanics to kind of exist upon it um without impacting each other you know God, like so obviously it hurts so my like, brain to even think about it and and just how you know like this is so this to me was kind of this perfect example of what naughty dog are doing it's like we've got this piece of we've developed this piece of technology which allows us to do something how do we translate that into something that would be just fucking cool to do yeah. right and and then and then suddenly what you're saying is i think for the most part you are right and i think that the and this is the whole point about the convergence of hollywood and video games can it ever happen will it ever happen and it's not happening if you're shooting someone for 10 minutes and then there's a three minute cutscene that's mm-hmm. completely non-interactive yeah and i think that one of the bywords uh, one of the things that they kept on that Neil Druckmann and Bruce Straley said again and again with The Last of Us, whether they were successful or not is up to everybody else. But like on The Last of Us was we want to tell a story through gameplay. So we want to set this world up and then we want the gameplay to feel to be an extension of how of the emotional range that we're trying to convey and everything else. Yeah. So, the, so the combat is um, fraught and loud and scary and there's hardly any ammunition. And um, the, so the stealth gameplay there doesn't really feel like other stealth gameplay. Um, and I think to a certain extent that was successful. And then I think, again, you take that technology for the train and you say, how do we, with Uncharted, you're, you are living out this experience of being this, this um, you know, action hero, adventurer, Nathan Drake. So that technology is then put into the service of uh, that barely believable sense of, am I doing this? Is like, at once, it's the same. It's yeah. me saying, have they made my PlayStation do this, really? Because that's like, like in the... I remember playing, there's aren't many surprises, you know, like when you follow a game from uh, like announcement to release. But I remember getting on that when you're in the plane over the desert 
in Uncharted 3 and uh, you have to blow out the kind of cargo and then you're just falling and then you see like a crate and you grab onto the crate and you have to climb around and um, let the parachute go and you're controlling it the whole time. And I remember just thinking like, how is this me? How have they like, you know what I mean? Like this just seems like there are too many moving parts for this to really be uh, happening. And I think similar thing when everyone saw the Uncharted 4 um demo at e3 last year when he's being dragged behind the jeep and he then he stands up and then he and you know how many moving parts there are to that and the physics like the mud physics you know just and then apart from that taking a step back the just the eye for design of them saying you know like this indiana jones style what looks cool like he's kind of surfing on this mud while shooting people while climbing into a jeep <laughs> uh, like the whole thing is i mean it's almost ridiculous uh, well almost um but that's so that to me uncharted 2 was the first time that i think that um that they really expressed that and i think that it was yeah like this i think you know, it's not the culmination because it wasn't at the end but i think it is the high point of um the last generations uh like dominant uh, mode which is presenting you with a story and then trying to you know and then uh just letting you play it and it being great fantastic well we're going to move on to a sort of another iconic franchise that is not so much about its story but definitely about its gameplay and showing you exposition through its gameplay whether you think it's good or not but let's listen to some music and go straight into it So the next game you've chosen for the <laughs> deserted place this week, Nathan, uh, the wonderful Shropshire town that you're stuck in, is uh, developed by Bungie and it was published by Microsoft Studios and released on November 15th, 2001. Um, it released for the Xbox initially, uh, not the Xbox One, the original OG Xbox. Uh, it was announced as a Mac exclusive when first shown, but it's the first game to feature the iconic Spartan Shoulder, uh, Spartan Shoulder, Spartan Soldier himself, Master Chief, a game that's spawned one of the most popular video game franchises of all time and the much beloved multiplayer it's the original halo nathan please tell me why you've chosen halo to take you i think it's mostly because of the grass on that opening level that's (laughs) that's the main reason that i've chosen halo um halo was so like um from doom 
right, I'm playing first-person shooters okay, from yeah. that point. Um, it's pr- it's maybe a mistake that Goldeneye isn't on this list because I really liked Goldeneye like a lot. I like a, um, you know, I got all the uh, did all the challenges, got all the cheat modes in Goldeneye, and there's like this this progression. Um, Doom for me, this is my first-person shooting. It just went Doom, Goldeneye, and then Halo. And I remember seeing Halo, and there was. Um, with the obviously, like uh, I didn't own any consoles, but I'm playing PlayStation Two all the way through university, um, and uh, seeing the Xbox and the way it marketed Halo as just you must have this. This is the best shooter, and there was something about the machine that was slightly less elegant, but maybe kind of more brutal and powerful than um, than PlayStation. It was just a very well positioned match. And people have kind of written excellent things about how the green marketing of Master Chief, you know, like him, the this American soldier is the perfect kind of icon for the original Xbox. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, not even in a cynical way. I just think that there, there's something that just, there's a match there, which was just, people just got. I this just, big, I seeing, beefy American product to have this big, beefy American soldier to go with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like this, just this big, violent, but in, like uh, technologically advanced thing. Um, and I, I remember seeing it actually in, um, it was like one of those spreads in a men, like, like you know, Loaded or FHM, men's yeah. bag, um, which was just like, an excuse for the guys in that office to get in all the latest TVs and stuff like where they would do like a nice photo shoot. Um, and it would be like, this is what you need to be doing this Christmas. It's like, you're going to need this TV. You're going to need this chair. You're going to have an Xbox and you're going to be playing Halo. And it was just like the guy had played Halo and it was just like, you, like at E3 or whatever. And it was just like, you just need to fucking play Halo. So even though I um, was, you know, not I'm not go. You know, I was not an idiot, and I played loads of games. I wasn't like I desperately need Halo. It's going to be the best thing ever. But I was like, I need to check it out. It looks like pretty good. And um, playing it, uh, going down to the Ring World for the first time. This just um, as a setting, the way that that Ring World captures the imagination is um, there is there is like a is it, it's Larry Niven, is it? There is like a book called. Ringworld, which I've never read, but just the the idea of this giant structure in space, you know, like something like uh, Rama, you know, like uh, the rendezvous with Rama, just the idea of this massive, inscrutable alien construct um, that just fucking blew me away. Being on it and then looking to the horizon and not seeing, you know, a curved horizon, but seeing this enormous thing like arcing above you um, and it just being that time where games could surprise you by being able to fully realize a world like that uh, and then and then looking down and there being like textured grass was just amazing like with a little <laughs> pistol uh, and then there's something about um i've i've always enjoyed i've enjoyed all the halo games um i think i think they they peaked at a certain point but they um the i think the thing that's very important for me with shooters is the feel of them I can't play yeah, Call of absolutely. Duty for like Call of Duty is. I mean, I I thought Modern Warfare, um, nearly ten years ago now was, uh, just this brilliant, uh, kind of kick up the ass, and in, and in terms of making it feel urgent and, um, making the the you know the, the characters are incredibly compelling and the the it sold you this 
idea of doing something reason you know basically quite unpleasant but just it was just fucking cool it was great and it was it's led to this um increasingly queasy set of um ways to make children love war but like the the games themselves call of duty is so slick and um so lightweight and halo was always the opposite to me like as soon as i played halo like i couldn't play um medal of honor or like any of these other I don't know how, I have no idea about the processes by which people who make games, programmers and set the kind of, you know, the dynamics of that, of, of, uh, I am like, um, I think I, to the point where I just think maybe Bungie are really fucking good at it because Destiny has a similar, um, feel like the UI design is perfect. The way that your cursor in Destiny, um, since when I saw it had a cursor, I was like, a cursor for like a console this is crazy for for moving over the menus but yeah. the, the way that it picks up um you know the dead zone on the uh, analog stick when it starts to move how fast it goes depending on how far across you pull your analog stick like these tiny um things which make you feel like you're controlling something of just quality and substance um all of that is in the way that you simply move around the world and aim at stuff in halo um and on top of that the i thought it was you're right i don't think it does have a story and i think that's been its undoing is trying to have one and the campaigns have become more and more convoluted but back then it was just a game about um you're a big man <laughs> with, a, with a gun and these aliens are, are just religiously inclined to decimate humankind and yeah then it was just, it was sort of that's the spirit of doom i don't know whether they were inspired at all by it but that spirit of just get down and shoot things just carry on yeah. and then we'll tell you a little bit of exposition uh in gameplay there'll be very limited cutscenes because halo doesn't have too many cutscenes but they tell you a lot of visual aids in front of you while you know cortana is telling chief things in his ear but that's all while you're just shooting things <laughs> just constantly shooting things yeah, it's, it's a, it's just, it's a, it's a game about, um, about action and about the quality. Like everything that's quality about it is invested in how it feels to play. No, not really about, you know, it doesn't really. It's not telling you a, a big story. And you know, like I feel about shooters generally. Um, I'm sure this is something to do with getting a bit older, but like, there's obviously some, like a grand folly, but in um, inventing intergalactic wars which hum humankind can win you know like if you were looking at another race of people oh you so you've consistently told stories about how people come and fight you and then you win i mean that's good well done mankind but there's <laughs> but there's something about that which is at least like i find the uh the you know like this huge business of uh, marketing and selling games based around real conflicts or even just fighting other people and about and it and it has to become it's inevitably become about the uh fetishization of hardware and, and military technology yeah and you know young people play these games and um and i'm sure it's majority of them obviously it's not going to do them any harm at all but i'm just uncomfortable with with that and at least you know i'm shooting aliens and purple blood comes out of them in doom you know uh, sorry in, in halo uh, and 
it, there is at least you know this veneer of escapism. Yeah, about it's like it's essentially violent. Things. And what I love about Halo as well, and what I've always enjoyed about Halo, is it's so bright. Like you talk about the lush grass that you see when you first look down, and that uh, it's just so bright. No matter where you go, there are very even when you go on alien spaceships, there's always like glowing blue LEDs or like flashing lights and that kind of thing. It's a complete different. It's the polar opposite of when you play a Call of Duty or a Battlefield game where it's people screaming, visual shakiness, and it's all depressing and brown and gray, or it's raining and miserable. And it is trying to, you know, fetishize this idea of war and warfare at a very human level. Whereas, like, Halo is this crazy adventure where you're just shooting things just to get to the next objective. There's no meaning. There's no moral behind it. It's just delightful. (laughs) It doesn't have any... It's not trying to tell a, a, a bigger story than it is. It's not trying to tell the player, oh, look, war is bad and this is how gritty it is. It's like, no, this is just a load of fun. We're going to make a bright, colourful shooter. That feels good. I think I think so. I, th- I think that it necessarily sells this idea of... Uh uh, uh, of the virtue of force i think like i said i think basically any game about a war has to do that um unless you undercut yourself spectacularly like something like spec ops uh, and that and, but to be honest i think this is the least damaging vessel for that kind of thing like you say the palette is uh kind of vibrant it's yeah. about it's about these cool environments and you are shooting clearly fantastical beings from you know from out of space it is um yeah, I'm, I'm worried about it a, a lot less from from that point of view, and and the multiplayer as well. I think just uh, it was just always an extension of the stuff that I've said about how good it feels to yeah. to play, like the and the balance in it. And I, I loved the first Halo's local multiplayer. I played a lot of that. Halo Two Online became like a huge thing for me. Same time I was playing World of Warcraft, I didn't really like the campaign of Halo Two, but the the first time I ever got to play shooters online in a kind of a stable environment was huge. And then I think. They kind of peaked with Halo Three, where I think that the if you buy ODST um, and you get the Halo Three multiplayer disc in there, which has got all the additional maps, I think that that disc now, even now, played uh, local area, uh, you know, four on four or whatever, um, is probably like if I had to play a, sh- a multiplayer shooter now, I would play that one. It's so, um, you know, like the. It's funny that Call of Duty is kind of this touch point for me in terms of, you know, it was on the cover when I first came back to the magazine and yeah. first started working in the industry. And it changed, obviously, you know, the last 10 years of shooters have been because of that game. Um, they Not just how slick and um, how, uh, and, and about the story it told and the setting and how people accepted this idea of modern warfare being like a more exciting environment, but just because um, the online side was so much about progression and xp and um what guns you had collected and it's about rewarding people for an extraordinary amount of time played in the game and it's very uh hostile to kind of newcomers and i would say skill too i mean there is there are very skillful players out there but halo 3 you would play there's no power-ups there's no you you know your movement you can't run like you have to know your maps incredibly well know how long it takes you to get from place to place, use your jumps very carefully, and then you are in a tactical battle for the power weapons which already exist on the map. It's it's like it's so much more strategically poised than than Call of Duty. Um it's Halo 3 multiplayer is like just fucking sublime. It's so good. (laughs) 
Fantastic. Well, now we're going to move on to a, a completely different game, and a, a game I know at PlayStation Access that you're uh, quite the proponent of. So let's listen to some awesome music and talk about it. So the uh, penultimate game on your list uh, to take with you to the wonderful countryside in England is developed by From Software and directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki. It's the sequel to the relatively unknown on-release PlayStation 3 title Demon's Souls. It originally released for the Xbox 360, PS3 and October of 2011 with a PC port that came later. It's the action fantasy RPG that wants you to die all of the time. It's Dark Souls. Nathan, please tell me, although I would definitely choose this game myself, Please tell me why you have chosen Dark Souls to be on your list. It's um, it's a funny one, Dark Souls, isn't it? I think that, that <laughs> it's become it's become more mainstream now. And I'm not saying that I, you know, I'm not saying I was a mod before you was a mod. Um, I'm not saying that you know I was I was into Dark Souls before it was cool because I don't think I was actually. I was kind of one of the. I really had to try to get into it. I, I struggled. Um, and it's funny. I think I have that thing of people who then do get into Dark. I'm not. I'm not a huge huge player. Um, like I've the. I've not played Dark Souls three yet, and I don't know the lore as well as most people. But the um. I fight. Do you find that when people complete a, a Souls game, that they say, you know, they're not really hard. You just need to play. You know, you just need to play them. In yeah, a there way. is definitely that culture of uh, I finished it. It's not that well, hard. Do, you know. Do you know we we get people on the we we get funny. We kind of bait them a little bit. We get people on the channel who who turn up and like you know if if Rob ever mentions Dark Souls, um, or if I'm ever playing Dark Souls on the channel, some you get loads of people just coming to tell you how terrible you are, even though it's your first playthrough and you're being re- you know what I mean, and you're being really careful. It's and everyone's fucking but, Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, and then, well, everyone's played through a first area of any Dark Souls game. It deliberately trips you up, and you know what I mean. The yeah. whole point is about about learning it, like I used to learn Doom. But um, I do genuinely think that it is the reason that Dark Souls is such a good game is because partly it isn't that hard in in any given stretch of level or environment. It's not harder than other games. It's just that it demands a particular approach from you, which is uh, antithetical to the um, kind of user-friendly approach that, that most games have developed. Um, you know, checkpoints and progression and, and all of those kind of things. And I think that Dark Souls is uh, is... I think it's stubborn rather than rather than hard. And I think once you've got your head around that, it's compelling in a way which is so refreshing to modern gamers because they are used to being, uh, they're used to the challenging games being just located in a different place, not being located in this sense of preservation and long-term planning, but in how to defeat the next encounter. 
Yeah. And obviously, you know, like encounters are very important in Dark Souls, but more important is, uh, I don't know, like this strange, uh, I think it's this, um, philosophically, it's just a different way of playing a game. It's not just about beating what's around the next corner. It's about your character progressing in this world and it's more it's a much more long-term view and being able to reset and the kind of acceptance of sometimes having to reset if you've done something wrong um and the fact that you can reset you know most games do not allow you to just simply say let's just have this area again and all the bad guys will come back and then i think that what makes the game uh properly incredible and very intelligent is the way that it takes those changes in approach i don't know how deliberate this is or whether it's simply the personal taste of the people who make it but it takes those differences in philosophy and approach and it has written a law which supports them and echoes them so the this is kind of like i said i don't know the law as well as you know i'm always reading or in the pub with uh rich stanton just to, yeah him telling me about <laughs> okay. Souls and me going, what, what character is that again rich um but just the basic building blocks of you of how everything being doomed and fucked and you know just this the the kind of the uh the sadness of the world and and the how debased it is and your character being undead so you start from this terrible place but the idea of you being um you either you know the two states if you die then you're hollow and then you can reclaim your humanity and the fact that yeah. it's called it's called different things in different games but um when you are when you have when you are not hollow when you have humanity um the game is different other people can invade you other people can also come and help you you can't summon people unless if you're hollow so the wider range of experiences are are open to you and just in a tiny way that just mirrors how i think about um so much to do with you know life you know and dark souls is one of those games i think where the philosophy is um sophisticated enough that people can tie it to uh, without hopefully sounding completely ridiculous but to me (laughs) it just means if if you know when i have approached situations in life or relationships or things i'm trying to do things i'm working on just things i'd like um when you invest yourself into it and you you become vulnerable to the failure of it yeah you know but the up- upside is that the reward is that much greater. If you never care about anything, then when it goes right or wrong, you you know you you know if you're always hedging your bets, then nothing is ever going to feel brilliant, but nothing will ever feel terrible either. And I think the game is a is a uh, is kind of about that. It's about um, and I think that it's great that it's called humanity. You know, it's about opening yourself up and trying to connect with other people and how that can end up with you getting hurt more um i think it's uh and apart from that you know it looks brilliant and it's about monsters um <laughs> which obviously as a as a big you know fancy is my thing man like the more i read um mozaki talking about the game and about how a lot of the character designs are influenced by illustrations from fighting fantasy you know that's like that stuff is the the my subconscious is basically made up of fighting fantasy books so okay yeah um, this is this stuff, you know. No wonder it connects with me on this on this kind of level. Um, and I, yeah, I, and, and and actually, apart from you know admiring that and admiring the way that the story is told um, through the environments and uh, 
I just like playing it. You know, I like, I enjoy the gameplay um, and I enjoy the the rush of, um, I enjoy I enjoy the rush of being able to do a level and not fucking it up. I don't particularly enjoy the bosses. I kind of tolerate them. But what I do enjoy is the sense of moving through an area you've never been tiptoeing, shield up, being terrified, and yeah. knowing, knowing that if you keep going, that in four or five hours you will know that area and it will, it, there will be nothing to fear there. And, yeah. it, and, it's, and that's like, like, again, that is so much like life, you know? And I, I, I say that as someone who I was always really shy I'm anxious about everything um, um, and then gradually realizing that that's, there's nothing that will hold you back in life more than just being scared of everything, you know, like, and, and obviously you'd be cautious in dark souls, but you go into these areas and you just eventually, it's not going to feel like that. You know, I guess that's like a message worth holding on to, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's with dark souls. It's one of those things. I think it teaches you. It doesn't matter if you fail, just try again, stick with it. And you'll get through anything. doesn't matter yeah. how difficult it is. Yeah, and it can be brutal as well. But, <laughs> yeah, but, just, but it's worth just, getting back Just like life. Sometimes you take really hard hits or really difficult times, but you can always recover with a little perseverance and a little bit of time investment as well. And although that is a very simplified version of the morals that Dark Souls try and tells, um, you can look a lot more deeper into it. But that is a very inspirational sort of idea. And also because it's about monsters. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're going to move on to your final game now, which is a game that hasn't featured uh, on any of anyone's lists yet but it's one of the fucking most... hipsters i can't believe it <laughs> and it's one of the more in, uh, influential just like halo just like modern warfare just like many many games that you've chosen uh very influential so let's listen to some music and let's f- send you on your way So the final game on your list today, Nathan, is the open-world boundary-breaking title developed by DMA Design and published by the owners and current developers of the series, Rockstar Games. It released for the PlayStation 2 on the 22nd of October 2001, and it's the game that took the series into 3D environments, and it featured the criminal protagonist, Claude, as he murdered for money and various criminal syndicates. It became one of the best-selling games of all time, well, of its generation, selling over 17 million copies in its first year alone it received incredible review scores and is given credit for inspiring a whole genre of open world titles it's grand theft auto 3 nathan it was 
why have you chosen Grand Theft Auto 3? Uh, I, um, man, I, I, is it the only, <laughs> I think it's the only PS2 game I've got in here, isn't it? Which is strange because PS2 was a big deal for me. But um, uh, it's because it was just so, it would change everything. It was like, uh, again, like I was kind of saying about that awkward phase of, um, uh, you know, there's a reason that smart developers like DMA made stuff like the original GTA top down because you go back to a lot of the kind of the 3D, even even Crash, you know, like you go back to a lot of Destruction Derby looks like wet cardboard boxes slowly it do, yeah, it doesn't look colliding. Good. It doesn't look good. And this is the first time, I mean, I knew what GTA looked like and then this came in to our house at university. I was in my second year, I think, and... That must be third year, third year. Um, you know, one guy's got a PlayStation 2. Uh, and we sat down to play it and we were just like, I had no idea that it would be open world, first of all. Uh, and I had no idea that it would be a kind of um, a representation of a 3D environment which was capable of housing that kind of, uh, you know, like the first time you just go, can I just steal a car? And I, yeah. you know, just drive, I could just drive, and I could just drive this car wherever I want into other cars and then steal them. Um, that sense of being off the leash um i've never felt anything like it you know like games jump boundaries all the time and the the you know the, the rockstar have gone on to do much more kind of technologically sophisticated and impressive things but i'm not sure anything will will seem like such a step forward as this did to me at the time um and it's, and it's funny i think the um uh i don't know again i wonder whether this is age or not but I like and I am in awe of GTA 5. It's an incredible game and I've played it. Um, I played quite a lot of single player. I didn't finish it, but I spend a lot of time looking around that world, just thinking how, how on earth did they do this? You know, like my favorite thing to do is to steal a plane and just fly, fly over, over the, the city. Map. Yeah. Yeah. Just an amazing, amazing thing. But the, uh, I have so many problems with, the representation of the characters, the activities, you know, everything you do in that world, basically, to some degree, I find objectionable. Um, <laughs> and and I thought that maybe GTA 4 less so. I think uh, I think an immigration story is a very smart thing to tell in that setting. Um, if you if your games are crime. I mean, again, we talk about the relationship between Hollywood and video games, and I think the GTA series is one of them games which very carefully, uh, like it played on that kind of 90s culture of, um, you know, gangsters and just the kind of tropes that were kind of just in the cultural kind of air at that time. And they then gradually formalized into uh, like this canon of American gangster pictures, which GTA 3 is based on. Yeah. And you're making, you're making GTA 4 and then you realize you need a more sophisticated take on that environment. I think the Im- the immigrant story is it's more of perfect. a deep look at sort of the American dream as well. The sort of From idea gra- of coming over to level. America, yeah, yeah. The, the the idea of coming over to America and being successful, then it not working out and having to turn to some ulterior motives. Some and th- yeah, and I think in terms of bringing that world alive. Uh, I believed in that character. I believed in that, you know, like much more than I than I did anything in in GTA Five. Anyway, but yeah. I, I guess all the, all of this is to say that um, GTA Three obviously contains just horrible stuff as well. But I think that <laughs> the reason that I justify to myself that it's okay, I, I feel like it's um, 
it's a it's a point of where we are now as games and where we were then as as games and back then I remember the TV ads, you know, and they had, I can't remember what the Italian, you know, Italian classical music on slow motion pictures of destruction in this 3D environment. And it was a, an advert which told everybody games can do this now. Like um, you may think of games as, you know, Pac-Man or your Mega Drive, but games are, they can be as, and you remember what the 90s was like, just endlessly ironic, right? Like that was the, <laughs> the, the tone of it was just um, Tarantino through a hall of mirrors. Um and nothing was taken too seriously, but nothing. in combination yeah. in combination with that, I think that it was just like this gaming. It was like a real punk moment of just like these people in this uh, medium, which hadn't. I mean, it been just didn't have any serious cultural attention. Just saying, look at the well, look at what we are able to do, and and the fact that they were able to do it justified everything that happened in that game like to 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 a certain extent you know nothing in there certainly when i played it at the time nothing made me go oh actually the very very end made me feel a bit i mean the, uh it's not spoilers now is it is it spoilers spoilers are okay it's fine. The, this, the um the wordless protagonist is walking away with uh i think it's his girlfriend is it at the end yeah. she's talking and talking and talking and then there's just a gunshot and you're just like well that's i mean that's a deeply misogynist note to end on <laughs> congratulations everybody i remember even at the time being like ah why why but but the senseless murder of hundreds that i did in the meantime was fine just absolutely fine so yeah so the gta3 just ah man it was just like this uh it was just like waking up in you know just the realities just exploded into the the potential in that thing was ridiculous and um and just borne out by just hours and hours of playing it with a group of guys who were living with me at university, you know, passing the pad, just doing stupid stuff, going on rampages, um, housed in this kind of uh, just culturally kind of potent, like middle finger to cinema. It was like amazing. (laughs) So um, GTA 3 was one of those things that... I played GTA 3 when I was very young and it was that sort of, I didn't take it seriously at all in any way. It was more about just driving around and having the freedom to just go anywhere I wanted. And But there was something sort of incredible about the world they built at that time and the replication of an actual real city for the first time in 3D, we'd had like this, as you said, this sort of pseudo 3D we saw with the PlayStation and some PC games at the time. But there was almost this, holy crap, this is like, this is like real life. This is a real world city based on a real world American city. I could go to my house if I lived in this town. And, and I don't know, it's hard to describe about the the impact it had at that time. People were like, oh, wow, this this is what we can do with video games now. Definitely. You know, I feel, I feel like that's remained, um, I mean, I think it's prevalent in more games now, but it's always in GTA or GTA kind of clones, you know, which, which base themselves on real cities. The, uh, the similarity between the place that they are, um, recreating and the in-game version. Yeah. That always becomes a talking point. And there's just like this endless, like you're right. I think it is hard to put your finger on it, but it's like this fascination that we are simply capable of doing this now. Um, I did one of the first videos did well for us on access was um uh just looking at 
GTA 5 screenshots and it was while the guys on CVG would, they were doing GTA 5 o'clock, right? So they were doing oh, this I, re- I remember watching that show while I was actually working on GTA 5 being like, huh, uh, you're onto the right thing here or, oh, yeah. you guys are way off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was so really that, that fun. Became, that became like a huge, I mean, it was a pretty big show for them. And, and Yeah, it was huge, yeah. And they were following it and then we were, um, I mean, obviously we kind of sat next to them um, and I was going to LA for... I think I was going to see the last of us reveal um, and ended up, you know, jumping on a bike anyway with um, the bunch of these screenshots on my phone. And I kind of, I think uh, James Jarvis over there at future had, um, who was on G- uh, GTA five o'clock had um, kind of found where they probably were on the map. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to go out and I'm just going to go check them out. out. Yeah. I'm going to take a camera and just see if I can, uh, you know, match them up. And, um, and that feeling of riding around the city, I was on a bike, I was just riding around the city and then like finding these places and then mapping them onto their real world equivalents was like this just cool, like adventure. It was really, and like, you know, the, the video was, um, you know, turned out pretty well. And, but, uh, and we, we've done other ones too, but just these comparisons, I love doing comparisons of, um, and I'm not even sure why, and I'm not sure, and they always do well. I'm not sure why people like to watch them, but just like, Hey, here's the game. And this is what it's like in real life. And it kind of, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like when you're a gog at the power of, uh, you know, Google street view and you're just like everywhere in the world is somehow been digitized and put into Google. How yeah. is this, you know, like, I guess it's just this, um, weird, the mastery that technology has given us over our environment, um, and I don't know, I think kind of architecture and, and space are some of the most interesting things about kind of video game design anyway. Um, uh, and yeah, the way that it's kind of erupted into the, I, that's totally why I like flying over the city in GTA 5. Fantastic. Well, we've come to the end now. We have to send you on your way to nowhere dangerous. You're just going to the English countryside to have a pint in a pub and play some Streets of Rage music. So <laughs> I, think, I, think you, I think you've got it sussed, to be honest. I think you've got I am, dude this is like i'm gonna make this holiday happen i think in the near future <laughs> do it head to head to shropshire and just go to some of the pubs around there it'd be fantastic so the last question i ask on this show and i don't know whether you're contractually obligated to say a certain company's consoles but the last question is if you could choose any console to take with you including the back catalog because that's very important uh what would you take with you oh dude god damn yes um i didn't know that this was coming you know it's it's, <laughs> it's hard not to say if i was being practical about this i'd probably say pc wouldn't i because well, you, so can't, many games. you can't pc's not allowed because you can emulate so that's cheating so right. that's not allowed so i can't play streets of race 2 on my pc no fine um <laughs> You can I have a steam machine, I guess, because you can't right. emulate things on that. Uh, or can I you? I'm, I don't think so. I think it's just a steam box, so it's um God damn. That's a really tough question. I think <laughs> I would say I mean I'm tempted to say um I think it would be either PlayStation 2's the back catalogue is so and I could play loads of stuff that I almost mentioned, like Eco. I don't know why I didn't put Eco in now. Um, <laughs> but, um, or 
PlayStation 3, but then if I say PlayStation 3, you know, like, I'd only say I like it better than Xbox 360 because by the end they'd almost made the, like, the UI and stuff as good. Okay. And I'm just more comfortable. You know when you're just, like, quite comfortable with the machine? Yeah. Like I, I Whether it's as good as not, it's, it's the thing that you're used to. And exactly. I understand that. Yes. Yeah. I think I will say... Uh, I will say... Play. So PlayStation 3 is rubbish though, isn't it? It was a disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> I don't think the back catalogue of the PlayStation 3 is as good as the Xbox Xbox 360s uh, or the PlayStation 2s. It's got, it's got Uncharted on it though, man. I mean, I basically... That's true, doing that's true. Up, but you're you, un- you already taking Uncharted 2 with you, so that's safe. That is true. That's yeah. safe. I'm never playing Gears of War. That's just not happening. I don't like Gears of War. Um, I'm going to say PlayStation 2 then. Okay. Even though only one of my games is from PlayStation 3. <laughs> well, I think uh, on Monday morning we would have been uh, rece- seeing some MCV news that Nathan Ditton has been fired from PlayStation Access for not vouching. <laughs> I know. If you hadn't chosen a PlayStation console. <laughs> the corporate eye in the sky. <laughs> Nathan, thank you so much for appearing on the show today and telling us all about PlayStation Access, all about yourself and all... The, the amazing uh, thought process you have behind your choices as well. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, man, thank you for having me. Oh, I hope you enjoyed it. I apologize that now you have to be shipped off to the English countryside, which isn't that far away from you, to be honest, in Bath. That's true. That's so true. You're and not I, that and far I quite away. fancy a pint as well, so I think it's a good time. <laughs> so can you uh, let the wonderful people of the internet know where you are on the internet or what they should be checking out of yours? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter. If uh, if you like Twitter, I'm, it's just my name, Nathan um, Dytum. Um, and oh my God, I've been pronouncing your name wrong. I apologize. Uh, it's okay. I was going to tell you at the end. I thought you could just slot it in seamlessly. I apologize um, entirely. I wasn't I sure. Worry. I wasn't sure. And I was like, I'm just going to go with it and then see if he corrects me. But he, but he didn't. So I was like, yes, I got it right. But no, no, no. I just, I just think we can just cut it out and you can just do it in the edit. No, it'll be fine. And, it is, and we never say our surnames on Access. So it's, it's tough. So, um, but I'll do, I'll do that again. Um, so I'm on Twitter just at, uh, at Nathan Dyson and we're on, um, YouTube at youtube.com forward slash PlayStation access. Uh, that's where all the cool kids hang out. Yeah, um, it is I a also, cool, a cool club of a million strong. So, uh, I also have, um, me and my wife who's, um, a writer as well. She, she writes about kind of politics, um, and other bits so she does book reviews and stuff for the guardian we have a podcast um at and this is this is relevant man um and yeah. it's at uh, the mispronounced item yeah because the whole podcast is like a joke about mispronouncing my name so it's called <laughs> it's called the mispronounced item because people mispronounced <laughs> item um, now i feel terrible <laughs> no man seriously like i feel like this is something that you've had to deal with your whole life and i've just made it way worse <laughs> I know, well no i have had to deal with it my whole life but it's like it's fine actually sarah goes on the radio every now and again and um do you know who michael rosen is he's a really nice guy uh like, no i don't know he's like a children's author and he's just kind of he's into he does a program on radio for just about books and um she okay. went on there and she was so sure that he was going to get her name wrong that he introduced her as sarah ditem and she immediately said it's ditem actually <laughs> And then she went, no, it's not. You got it right. And they had to start again. So, you know, it, c- it could be worse. She, she felt much worse than you do now. Oh, God. <laughs> well, 
thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on finally. Um, so yeah, we've come to the end of the show. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter for any reason uh, to see me talk about video games most of the time, it's at LiamBME. And you can follow the show at Final Game Show. I've got almost like 300-something followers on that or whatever. Um, you can go find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash Final Games Podcast. And you can get it on iTunes as well. Um, it's rising in the iTunes charts again. We had Steve Burns on a few weeks ago and it was number one, which was amazing. And then last week with Greg Seven, it was in like the top 10 for a day and something. So that's amazing. And uh, thank you so much for downloading it and all that thing, sharing it, you wonderful people. Uh, so I hope you join us next time. And thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. So what's it like to be a superstar? Got a name in likes on my trick tap boss. Think you got game, you should see my stack. I got racks on racks and my control is black. And don't pretend you ain't see my profile. Follow backs for miles and miles. 5k easy, see my shtick. Don't need no blue tick to know I'm legit. This is history in the making. Peak of evolution and no mistaking. Even the dictionary got my face in. 